have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Later, I, we I, see him uh, working more on the cars, and uh, Jack Dance is there. Jack Dance. Boop, 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 boop. Is this for every single actor? No, that we're going to pass by. No, just the ones that just so the ones that I want fanfares. to. Just the one that I want to. Uh, this was okay. Tone shift, serious shift here. This was Jack Dance's final appearance in a Lynch project. I see, and it was his final acting role uh, oh. before his tragic death. So. Not so much the, the air horns anymore. Uh, genuinely, really tragic death. Uh, and I mentioned this, I believe, I want to say in like a previous pod, I want to say it was in a look back, um, his cause of death is really weird. So from what we understand, it was from injuries sustained during a fight that he had at like this place. I was like, a, it was a donut shop or restaurant or something. Like there was, there was this fight that broke out. Okay. And it was really, really weird. And he was only like 53 when it happened. Um... Yeah, and the film was released a month later. So Lost High was released like a month after Jack Dance passed away from these injuries that were sustained. Oh. Yeah. That it's is. extremely mysterious circumstances. Enough so that like former cast member Michael J. Anderson, uh, from what I've read, had accused David Lynch of like killing Jack Nance. Oh. In an especially like weird comment. Okay. And there's been other things that Michael J. Anderson has alleged at certain points. I don't dig much into it, I guess, not not because I'm not doing my research, but because I just don't necessarily always want to get bogged down in the he said, she said of weird allegations and such. But there does appear to be some animosity toward and between Michael J. Anderson and David Lynch that has resulted in some rather strange allegations that I don't think have any merit from what I can gather. And from what everyone else is saying, um, David Lynch and Jack Nance were very close and that Jack Nance's passing would have been an incredible sadness for David Lynch. Mm -hmm. Um, he'd always worked with them in every project he can get Jack Nance involved in. Okay. So, you know, I have no doubt that if Jack Nance had been around for it, he would have been in Mulholland drive, right? He would have been in Inland empire somehow. But, um, unfortunately this was, um, around that time that he passed. So Mm. yeah, that's sad. Mm hmm. Jack Dance's role is pretty small in this movie. Um, he, I don't even remember the character's name, really, but he works at the auto repair shop, and Pete is working on vehicles, and there's this, like, saxophone music playing in the background, and Pete becomes clearly, like, disoriented by it or bothered I'm, by I'm it. I'm already kind of getting disoriented right now because Jack Nance with a character named Pete. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Together. It's hard to not, like... Yeah. Uh, it's I'm unwinding this actually. I understand. in my brain. But, um, but yeah, Pete is basically like out of breath, like frustrated. Clearly it took a toll of him. So he like gets up and he turns, like he turns the station away from the saxophone and you know, Jack Nance's character is all like, I liked that. You know what? Why are you changing my music? <laughs> um, and, and that's, I believe like one of the last times we see him, we do see him later also, um, when he sees a woman, he finds attractive kind of remarking on it. Otherwise he's mostly a background element, a little bit of flavor mm-hmm. for the, uh, the car shop, the car dealership. It's at this same location of Arnie's complete car service that Pete and alongside Pete, us, meet our new, in quotation marks with asterisks, italicized, bolded, and underlined, our new character of Alice, of Alice Wakefield. Yes. 
And so she appears with Mr. Eddie in his black Cadillac. She looks familiar. She looks awfully familiar. She's in like the background. I really like how it's done. She's in the background, kind of almost like a little bit blurry. Mr. Eddie's in the foreground. And then after Mr. Eddie does step aside, we get the full-on view of Alice Wakefield played by a blonde Patricia Arquette, Mm. the same actor who played Renee earlier in the film. Okay. Which it feels very much like a love at first sight sort of moment. Mm-hmm. We get the music playing very, very abruptly uh, as this is kind of in, ensuing of this sort of slow-mo, very drawn out, um, her like leaving the car and kind of like camera just fixated on her and getting Pete's a little bit reactions from it. Um, so he just immediately smitten with the character of Alice Wakefield. It is most certainly a very fun mystical moment between the two, especially with not even probably about 10 minutes from the sex scene with the other girlfriend. I do think what really propels this moment for the viewer is that the, I don't don't know, I guess you almost say dramatic irony, but like us knowing that this actor is the same one as Renee, when we're watching this unfold, we're probably feeling a little bit of a different sense of emotions than he is if he's just like smitten with the love at first sight. However, at the same time, we don't know what Pete is thinking, and Pete does have flashes of memories of Fred. So, mm-hmm. you know, when Pete looks at her, does he think she's familiar or not? Does he recognize? Does any part of him recognize? Because it's unclear at first, at least, right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We'll go with The that. viewers yeah. are mainly going to be thinking probably, probably. The viewers maybe, if they recognize her or not. I don't know. I think... Most viewers would recognize the actor, Stop yes. Stop looking at me okay. that way. Professor, I don't mean to do this to you, but you did. It sounds like you do mean off, to do this off to pod, me. Off pod, you did not recognize that this was the same actor as Renee. Listen, listeners who also Maybe over, have... over time you might have figured it out. Mm. Okay, now listeners, you're doubting yourself. Listeners, if you have the same experience such as me where it's sometimes difficult to recognize faces, know you're valid. And yes. you don't have to take nonsense you are valid. people like Khalil. You're the one who just brought up that people may not recognize, so I'm may just... may not. So, like, maybe I didn't. That's okay. But, like, I don't mention, like, oh, someone may not hear this because they're deaf. I don't have to mention that every movie because every... <laughs> yes, people have different experiences of media, but the vast majority don't have that experience. If you... Be, if Let's get a poll going, then. If you happen to recognize Foyt faces very well, go ahead and email us at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or tweet at us at snakeeyedreams1, the numeral one, as in... One actor <laughs> playing two characters. And may I say, your criteria for recognizing faces very well is recognizing the f- same face of the same person with just a different color wig. Yes. Okay. Just to clarify. I'm just saying that it's hard for me. Uh, I'm not the only one. No, I, I don't doubt that you are. It's just saying, I don't have, we need a poll. Professor, I wasn't even going to bring this up, but that you said the thing. You I said, said the, the thing, thing, and you could have dropped it. I could have dropped it. Don't and now I'm going to drop you. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, moving on, moving on. Um, yeah, viewers are definitely probably going to be thinking, probably, definitely, probably going to be thinking like, wow, it's the same actor who played that character earlier. Is this like the same person? Did that Renee character actually die? Mm-hmm. What's happening? We don't know if Pete's thinking anything at all beyond pretty lady. What's going on? Who knows? He's still waking up. From Alice a dream, if you Wakefield. Know. The fact that her name is Wakefield. Ah. And the fact that his name is Pete Dayton. And Day, this, wake. Wake, day. Uh, we got an Alice here. Alice 
a wonderland of sorts, mm-hmm. one a could won- say. A wondrous name, and it, I agree. Yes. Now, if we strip away She's those elements... too. Yeah, if we strip away the elements that are a little bit more tying her to Renee, it is, again, like you said, only about 10 minutes after he's making out with his girlfriend, Sheila, he just sees some pretty lady at the place he works. Not only that, but, the, like, the girlfriend of the man who he's seen do normal things during a drive. Well, we'll go back to that. Done normal things. So... Maybe, maybe, just maybe, maybe, don't, maybe don't. Have you considered not? She asks him if he wants to take her out to dinner, and he's like, I don't know, that's a good idea. How about I take you to dinner? And then he's like, well, that's a good idea. Okay, well, I guess I'm just going to call a cab. No, I am the man. I will move my hand and grab the phone away from you and hang up the phone, and I will stare at you longingly, and you will stare at me longingly. And I will so... be the man who makes the worst idea happen. Because I am the stupid person. I am the person who pursues the love interest of Mr. Eddie. I have seen Mr. Eddie act normally in social encounters. And I am willing to risk it all for the sake of my one true love, who I have just now met. Sex? Sex. <laughs> Alice says they skip the dinner and cut to them snacking on each other. <laughs> You did your best. I did my best. <laughs> and uh, they're, uh, they're making out under mostly red light with like hints of blue going on, which forms like a purple. Mm. Would you believe purple and you know, blue and red? Mm. Uh, the officers are commenting outside about this and how much sex this guy seems to have. Sex, 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 sex. Yeah. And, and it ensues and he gives her the phone number. And a lot of their relationship, as we see in the film, is just sexual encounters. Yeah, we don't have any like scenes of them affectionately going to a petting zoo mm. or going... Mini golfing. There's actually some. Or jumping into a volcano. No, it seems like constant sex. Uh, Yeah. And there is even one scene where, like, he's getting very pent up and it's like he's very. (laughs) Hold on a second. I just realized all three of the examples I could use as sex jokes. (laughs) Good job. He wants to put the ball in the hole. Like the like the like the, the mini golf. We all know where we're going with all he, this. He, he wants gets the, pent up at one point. He wants to pet with the petting zoo, and then he wants to I don't know, experience the heat of the volcano or something. Do you want to go into further detail, Cleo? No. There's also no, no. a lot of things going on with fingernails. Where like sometimes Alice has white fingernails, sometimes Alice has black fingernails throughout the whole movie. Which gets to my point with him getting pent up. At one point, and then going off to a hotel, which seems to be another sexual act, if you will, with Alice. But the most notable thing is that it's not blonde hair. Mm -hmm. It's it's a deep brown. Mm -hmm. There's some blurring of the lines here. There's some blurring of some lines here. So, as we are going into this smoothie of sex. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) That sounds disgusting. I, you know what I'm thinking that means, and you know what the <laughs> listener's thinking, and you have the you have the audacity to judge me, me with my petting zoo joke, you over there with the the mountain lion of sex jokes. <laughs> By that I mean it snarls and it's vicious. Regardless, this relationship is going on and on and on and more and more intense. Yeah, and yeah, I gotta say it's not gonna work out so well for Pete in the long haul, especially with how. His family and his yes. lover are getting a little bit concerned. And, well, and his ex-lover, as it seems. They just sit him down. And they're like, look, 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 look. We're going to make things... This is very much paraphrasing. We're going to set things straight. Um, we're not going to tell the cops anything about that. No matter what they say that they think that they know, we're not going to stick with that. As far as we're aware, you came home with Sheila. Mm-hmm. 
and you had another man with you, and I've never seen this man in my whole damn life. So the presence of this other being, <laughs> who could it be? So my mind goes immediately to the mystery man, right? There's two people it could be. Mystery one with the mystery man. And the other one is who's actively inside of a vehicle, pulls over a vehicle, and stops in front of Pete at a later time mm-hmm. or a sooner time. Time is not linear in this film. Is I it feel. future? Is it past? Who knows? Yes, regardless. So it's either the Pete or it is the vampire. I'm laying to Pete. Okay. Mainly because... You mean, I'm confused. Pete is Pete. You mean Fred? Fred, yes. Yeah. The other Pete. I mean, even saying Pete is Pete is a debatable argument, actually. <laughs> Pete is Fred, maybe? I don't believe Pete is Pete. I don't so believe... So you think... You think they I, feel have... that, I feel that the person who is Pete mm-hmm. and the name is shouted out as Pete, there is a Pete out there. I think that Fred stops in front of a boy named Pete as Pete's name is yelled out. Oh, okay. All right. Because all right. that's one scene that we have acted physically see as these sort of lights and incense go out, especially since later on, Fred's driving away down the lost highway. And eventually we see a scene where during this highway, it just turns and quickly stops in front of this kid who is mm-hmm. Pete. So yes, that, 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 that's my personal consensus right now that I believe personal Fre- consensus. So all th- of you has agreed to this, that Fred <laughs> had appeared before them inside this vehicle. Uh, cops had followed after this instance, if you will. So cops had come to witness it. They're panicking because they're and rushing towards him because there is a car revving right to this guy's general direction, the sun, as well mm-hmm. as everyone. And this is a concerning situation, especially if cops are following along the way, and he's just standing there. And he's previously had trouble with the law mm-hmm. with that one-year probation, so yeah. there is that concern. I, I guess this is where I'm a little bit lost. I lean more toward the mystery man. I think if it's Fred, it creates more questions in me than answers, I suppose. Um, it's, I'm not saying it's not possible. It definitely is still possible. I don't believe this scene is actively there, but it's the thing that makes the most sense to me. Because I guess I'm more lost between the Pete that's real and the Pete that's not real in your interpretation. The Pete that's not real. I think that's still like these guys not knowing who Fred is by Fred's own perspective, trying to put this narrative together in his head as he's sitting inside of a cell waiting for uh, his lo- next point in line to come up as he is getting actively drugged and doped up. I actively believe that all these sequences is just his brain rationalizing like his actions to so, the world around him. I don't think these Pete instances exist because I think he's putting a story around Pete and making a narrative on what he believes reality is. So the as only- the saying goes, I like to remember things my own way, how I remember them, not necessarily how they happen. So then by that logic, just kind of taking some time here to, to parse that out. So your interpretation then is that Pete is someone that he had previously driven by on a highway or is that happening the, in his mind? This is mind? at the end of the movie where uh, we see Fred chase. is ch- being chased and f- Fred in his moments turns off to the side and sees Pete standing there, just standing there. There's a sharp turn where like okay. Pete is in the headlights. That's where um, at the end of the film, mind you, when he's driving away, I don't think he made a stop. No, the he cops didn't. Come by. I think that with those shocking blue lights, that's the sort of like quote unquote electric chair moment that's linking all this right. together. I think that's when he stops in front of this poor kid and he is veering off the path in front of him. Well, I guess I'm confused though. Isn't the car chase in his head though? That's not a real thing. I think the car chase for Fred is real. I think that after like he was caught, if you will, but he was like in his house when he was detained, he was detained 
in a location. I don't fully believe that it's his house when he gets punched in the face. I thought it was. It's the curtains make it difficult to tell okay. in the bookshelf because I hadn't seen those any any other location. Okay. It seems like they had taken him to the brig house at that point. Yeah, I guess I'm still on the assumption that's his house, so the chase scene wouldn't make a lot of sense to be real. Why would you interrogate him inside of his home? That's just bad etiquette at this point. But that might just be like <laughs> a thematically interesting place. I believe that they took him, interrogated him at their location. Okay. So, in the meantime, he kills off whichever one in whichever order. Uh, I believe that he kills off Dick first before he kills off his wife. Okay. And then after that ensuing, and still this perspective is where some like physical scenes are skewed. So this is he very escapes, interesting. And the end of the line is when he stopped in front of this kid. I'll finish off actually my theory right now because just to try to make sense of this whole entire yeah, thing. Right yeah, this here. is interesting because I'm already because, kind of seeing where I agree and where I don't agree. So this yep. is interesting. So after he's been like chased and caught down and detained, uh, the last thing that he sees is this very intense moment where he nearly runs over a kid, something mm -hmm. that might stick inside of his head at that sort of point. So when he's stuck inside of the cell and just like this sort of like dream comes to his mind, if you will, like it, oh no, Pete's somehow here and we need to drag him out. No, I think his brain is rationalizing. This is a kid that met someone named Alice, another reality, another person, if you will, um, and that person had seduced him in her own way, that there's this other life that this Alice person was living, if you will, and just bringing in these sort of, like, people inside of her life. I think that his doubts when it concerned Renee is trying to rationalize itself out and just make him out more of um, someone more tragic, if you will, mm -hmm. that she is this person that he can hardly ever know how he can never hold on to how will never belong to her right because she's doing all this stuff inside the background well, it's the way around you will ne you will never own me basically you will never yeah. own me yes yeah. it is something which she is now intangible she is this very hyper sexualized person that is basically out to get what she feels that she needs mm -hmm. um and finding someone more sexually capable mm -hmm. inside of her life and being able to trust him with that uh, is important enough to her to keep going. So I think that this entire narrative uh, with Pete is just him using the last available young individual with all sorts of highlights in his life and then making a story around it so that he can make more sense of what's happened to his reality. I think it's especially important that Pete doesn't really have much lines for himself or much real drive other than making sure he gets to work one day. Other than that, it's all part of this other narrative. Mm -hmm. And he also makes mention that he just doesn't have that much memory. There's not much really going into like his own personal interest, taste, or past or anything like that because there's nothing to get from there. There's nothing that would aid the narrative for Fred in this instance. Which makes characters like Sheila feel very strange. Like, what's Sheila's Sheila was there this? because she was also standing in front. That's where, like, the dad oh, mother... Oh, yeah, so just just fair. He had to invent that, her for that reason. That woman had to be, like, a girlfriend or something. Like, okay. had to be together with him. Okay. Like, she said Pete, so that's clearly, like, a woman that's, like, not a sister or anything like that. Uh, or anything like that. It might say brother or something like that. Now this is where it's getting a little complicated. Uh, yeah, that. it could be a sister still. It could be a sister, but for the use of sex and yeah. how important sex is, that's a girlfriend. You know, I, I, I think a lot of what you're saying tracks with me. I, I could I could imagine a lot of it. I don't feel like I have a clear 
singular interpretation at this point that I've cemented myself with. I do yes. agree with a lot of what you're saying, though. I suppose the biggest divergent point for me is that I view the drive at the end as being him being electrocuted in the electric chair. So I imagine like the moment he sits down in the car, he's sitting down in the chair, the violent shaking at the end, the sort of gr- kind of frightening imagery is more of the thrashing of a death thrash. I, but where I also differ too then is that I feel like Dick Laurent and Mr. Eddie are a fictitious element too. So my brain is not thinking that in real life he actually killed that guy. I'm thinking more that... When he heard that message on the intercom, you know, Dick Laurent is dead, that is leaking in and he's creating this new character to be Dick Laurent that he has to be the one to kill. I think that in both respects, more so leaning on the first one than the second one, is that that layered sort of like area of one being a drive but also being his electric chair, his memory merging in with his final Mm -hmm. moments. I don't think he's fully in his conscious mind as he is getting electrocuted, Mm -hmm. mind you. I do think that this is based off of a realm of reality, but that reality is then being molded through this dreamscape. I think that, again, both can exist at the Mm -hmm. same time and also separately. I think that you bring up a good point with uh, Eddie because um, the question of, like, Eddie actually existing, his final words um, could be a note towards, like, being more self-reflection, but at the end of the day... This is a someone to conquer. This is something to put out the frustrations on because this is an antagonist in one's life on the problems that he's having right now. Yeah. And it seems like that antagonism is leaning more into Eddie, the person who is interrupting or uh, fulfilling these points inside of life instead of, like, towards Alice. Because Alice, like, she does die. Like, mm-hmm. Renee does die physically. But that's more tragic for the character because he still loved her. It's just that something snapped within, and that's where... This is the bad, how could this ever happen? But Renee still somehow lives on. And this is the, I killed off this one person because this was important to me. I think one of the biggest pieces of evidence that I could possibly give, as subjective as it is to this idea, is that character of Andy, because if we do take the first 40 minutes of being real, right, where he goes to that pool party at Andy's place and he sees how his wife interacts with Andy and he's kind of suspicious. It's like, how do you know that guy again? And guess what he turns Andy into? That's what I mean. <laughs> he he morphs the idea of the suspicious tapes even back into that if you want to think it that way. Mm-hmm. But he turned Andy into the worst fear he could have. That that job that he had given her, that the way she knows him, there's some sort of sexual sordid dealing behind that. Mm -hmm. And that that's somehow linked to something really bad with her. So if we do take it to be an element of his mind kind of trying to piece things together in his half delusional, half drugged up state on the electric chair or going to the electric chair Mm -hmm. on death row, um, I think that the stuff with Andy makes a lot of sense as part of a personal narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would turn that guy into this weird disposal. Like he has to kill him to get some justice out of it, but Mm -hmm. to turn him into this sick, gross person, which also gives context for a lot of the really darker elements of the film, that this is his psyche trying to play out the scenarios that make him simultaneously the hero and the villain, I guess. It also makes it very more fitting, I find, to have the very comical death yeah. be with this guy who literally like nearly gets decapitated on a ch- like a table. It's hard for me to believe that this ending isn't one of the endings that Lynch may have intended because mm-hmm. um, it fits very well. Mm-hmm. Even as we say this though, it, it is a, it is a messy fit. It, it is, you know, cause like even getting down to whether the drive happened or not, we don't have a clear linking of how he net, how he got to Pete. 
what even happened after that. I mean, I think your theory works. The idea that he almost ran into Pete, that's when he got apprehended. The thought lingered in his mind. I could see that. Mm -hmm. But we don't know for sure. We don't. And that's that's where we don't have like an anchoring point that I'm and I can think of to be able to define like where these connections fully lie. I, I think the biggest one, but also is something that can just be blended with like the David Lynch style is a moment such as the electric chair. Yeah. Like where there's actively like something very heavily, what seems to be supernatural going on, but why is it going on? The convulsing. Yeah. Um, it's it's just such an obvious thing to reference that it, it, it lingers in my mind. Even if we mm -hmm. don't see the electric chair, that line just seems ominous considering electricity with this guy. <laughs> like it's just hard for me not to think of that. And it is funny because, you know, Lynch is known for dreamlike um stories mm -hmm. but lost highway one of me might be one of the most clearly dreamlike in that there is a very way you know very valid way to read this as almost all being a dream mm -hmm. but i don't think that cheapens it no i don't think you so. you know either. i know that like in in terms of I mean, actually, and, I actually made a funny joke like at the beginning mm. of like when we, uh you were passing by when i first started it's like oh yeah you know those classic yep. little film that's like a mario 2 scenario you know it's all a dream but it may very well be yeah i think it's a very valid way to read it and <laughs> I don't think it cheapens it. If anything, I kind of like the dream interpretation more than if it is all, you know, real, mm -hmm. quote unquote. Because if it turns out that Andy is just this guy who makes these pornos for Dick Laurent, and that's the way they're connected, and that this whole entire time, uh, you know, Renee lived a double life where she was pretending to be something she wasn't and all this. Sort of, like, if that turns out to be more grounded in reality... It's just kind of whatever to me. Like, I don't really have as much of a strong emotional connection. Mm -hmm. But if I read this as this person's, like, brain trying to connect pieces from the first 40 minutes and scramble them. To get to the point of, I like to remember things my own way. Yeah, it just fits. So I find that more personally satisfying than if it is meant to be all, like, literal, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But there's also enough happening that makes it seem like literal doesn't make sense either. So, <laughs> anyway... Back to back to the back movie. To the podcast. Back to the podcast. That 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 was good though. I'm glad I'm glad we had that conversation. <laughs> um, kind of kind of going back forward then. Um, as Alice, she tells Pete that she's positive Mr. Eddie is going to kill them, mm -hmm. and you know they need money. They need to go away and live their life together. And she knows a guy that it's pretty easy to rob. Okay, it's this guy who pays <laughs> girls to party with him. What? Speaking of Speaking portal of man, Andy, right? And, you know, he's over here like, wait, you parted with him. Did you, did you like it? Like and she's like, no, it was part of the deal. You know, he works for Mr. Eddie. He makes pornos for him. Yeah. A lot of the story is actually almost like very close to being word for word verbatim of Renee's story earlier yes. to Fred's. Yes. And then we get this kind of this flashback, I guess you would say, whether, you know, real or fictitious, where she recalls this day when Eddie, Mr. Eddie had made an appointment for her to see a man turned out to be Andy and went to this place and she was made to wait forever with this guy guarding the door. And then when it got dark, she was put into another room. And um, this is when Marilyn Manson's version of I put a spell on you starts playing. There's red carpet, red curtains. Mr. Eddie's by the fireplace. Mm -hmm. um, a man points a gun at, Aunt, uh, at Alice's head and she is forced to strip first to her underwear, then go topless. Her fingernails are in the scene red, by the way. And there's just kind of this lingering moment where she is forced to be vulnerable and possibly perform sexually under threat of yes. violence. And so, again, this is where, if it is 
part of this sort of dream aspect or mind aspect. This is the darkness of Dick Laurent, how cruelly is Omini is. But then it's also, again, that's that sexual perversion that seems to be knacking in at the subconscious mm-hmm. of Fred. Knock, knock. Who's yeah. there? Not you. And, yeah. I also love that they're trying to, like, push a masculine atmosphere. So, like, there's just a guy working out in the corner. Yes, yes. <laughs> And she asks Pete if he wants her to go away after he kind of explained that story. He's like, nope, nope, still love you. And um, they they decide to, you know, pursue this idea of of, uh, of stealing from Andy, and that'll be their ticket out of here. Meanwhile, Sheila still has her doubts and suspicions about Pete sleeping with someone else, and she confronts him finally. Yes. Um, and he apologizes. She seems angry and totally justified. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sheila done nothing wrong from what I can tell in this narrative. Mm-hmm. And um, the the mom, Pete's mom, says that a man has called several times. It turns out to be Mr. Eddie. Mr. Eddie hands the phone over to a friend of his. Which, if we are to take the element of doubts in, like, mm-hmm. at first it's like Eddie's like, Hey, buddy. Hey, how you doing? How you doing, friend? You're doing good. You're doing good. I'm glad to hear. Hey, hey there, uh, Pete. I think that I got a friend right here that uh, he wants to have a word with you. You know, <laughs> and if we are to go like to like this friend, mm-hmm. if you will, of Dick Laurent uh, and just having him speak through, I think that's like Pete having his doubts, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and that being like a power play for someone like Mr. Eddie, because he's freaking Mr. Eddie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or he just has th- to deal with Satan. Or if he just deals with <laughs> Satan directly. <laughs> Either like, way. <laughs> I like working with Dow more than I look, like working with Satan, but that's just my uh, Saturday and Sundays, I you know? I guess it depends <laughs> on which one offers better benefit plan. <laughs> um, uh, and then they get a little, little anecdote, a little story here. I quite like this isolated moment where the mystery man says, in the East, in the Far East, when a person is sentenced to death, they're sent to a place where they can't escape never knowing when an executioner may step up behind them and fire a bullet into the back of their head. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Again, if we were to read this as like moments before death row, he's escaped, uh, like he's been set free, but more so with the drugs that he has inside of his mouth and his brain. He is now free to roam. No, I mean, just that's what I mean is that. any moment he could be executed. Yeah, like if we just take it literally here, if we don't we don't take the dream approach, it's just the idea <laughs> just that- Just this weird man. <laughs> no, it's the idea that Mr. Eddie at any moment can kill you. Yes. Like you think you're so smart. You think you know what you're doing. You think you're in control. Fair. We're watching you. You never know when it's going to hit you. However, if we are taking the dream approach, this is David Lynch like poking you in the eye saying, do you get it? I am referring to the idea here that at some point an executioner may kill you. You do not know when it's going to happen. Have you considered this thought that that is happening to you right now, Fred? And it's so on the nose, in this case on the eye, that it feels it feels right. You know? It does. <laughs> it does. It really does. Also, again, Mr. A takes back the phone. You know, just wanted to jump on and tell you I'm really glad you're doing okay. Hang it's up. It's, it's It was a good, really good power play. It was. Really good power play. Um, by the way, Andy's place is located on 2224 Deep Dell Place. You add those numbers together, that's 10. 10 is the number of completion. Completion of what? It's the number of completion. You completion look, of what? It is the number of completion. It's what are complete, we completing here? The dream. Not quite, actually. There's still stuff after it. There's still more to go! But it's complete. (laughs) 
It's like, you know, some video games you can get 100% and some games you get like 110%. 100%, 100 is the is the going to the house, the deep Dell place. 110. Also, Dell Mibbler clearly is the owner of this place in the Twin Peaks universe. <laughs> so she, uh, Alice, is going to be with Andy upstairs and Pete is going to wait downstairs until Alice sends Andy down. So noticing that, again, that Allie's, Al, Allie, Alice is going to use her, like, sexual wiles to entertain Andy and distract him. That's her weaponized sexuality again in, mm -hmm. in view here. Um, speaking of in view sexuality, when Andy enters through past the blue light of the pool we saw earlier, he sees this gigantic, like, screen um, where Alice is there during a sex scene. And it is just washed in blue. Yep. And um, he, he, he kind of is just like reacting to that. Then all of a sudden Andy comes down the stairs. Uh, he bops Andy on the head with the statue with the intent to knock him out. And Alice Which, is, by the way, I, 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 from what I'm seeing, mm -hmm. as far as this actor is, yeah, if you will. We, we didn't even talk about the actor, did we, Hardly? We did not really I just talk made about the a, actor. I made a in, fan fiction just... about him with, with a Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue. Regardless, um... He strikes towards this character, and might I say, like, with the open-robed sort of, like, visage, if you will, mm. um, it doesn't look like it's trying to emphasize anything like being well-endowed. Oh, guess. for Andy, you uh, mean? For Andy, yes. Oh, okay. But both in both, both cases. We haven't have really talked about the actor. I'll be honest, I didn't really find the performance of um, Balthazar Getty as Pete to be anything that notable. Uh -huh. I thought it was fine. I, think that, I don't think it was bad. It was fine. I think he did good. Um, I think that... Uh, I, I don't have any negative feelings. On I, I got acting. more out of Pullman's performance of Fred than I did. I agree. This one, a little, little more layered. Yeah. But also this character spends most of the movie just kind of vaguely confused about what he is. Regardless, <laughs> what I want to try to get that at though, yeah. is that I tried to look for Andy's penis, but I could he, not really, he really see it. He really tried to, and that's a commentary in of itself, isn't it's, it? It's, it, I think it's important because yeah. for one, we have so many sort of like points in which like the female form is emphasized, if mm -hmm. you will. And then we have this guy with an open robe uh, and just like bearing forward. Yeah. If you, bumbling forward almost, if you will. Uh, not like intentionally, but more so I'm going to my kitchen at two in the morning sort of way. Right. And uh, yeah, like there's no angle sort of like present hmm. on that or anything like that. It is interesting. It, it, it just seems like, for example... Hey, um, he's he's just not all he's cracked up to be, if you will. Like again, like making narratives. You on could this say guy. that he doesn't have a corner on the penis market because he got his head slammed. Yep, lunged into a corner of a table. He got circumcised on his head, but the wrong head. Yeah, ha -ha. circumcised. I mean, we got a wedge. Yep, <laughs> got a wedge in his his noggin. Um, yeah, Alice is like is smooching on him for, for doing the successful bop on the head before uh, Andy does the, the lunge and uh, gets vaulted to the table. And then um, Alice like no sells her line reaction. Wow. <laughs> like, just, it's like, just no emotion. Well, like, wow. It's just like, we killed him. It's like, you, you killed, killed him. him. Uh, which again, and it's this, like not even like arguing. Mm -hmm. It's just like, what do we do now? Yeah. This is kind of one of the first main indications that, yeah, Alice might be a bit more manipulating the situation and that she might be in more control than it might at first appear with mm -hmm. what's going on. Cause, but for a while there, she was more the damsel in distress character of like, you need to 
get me out of here because Dick Laurent's a dangerous man and we got to go off together because I love you. But now it's just like, oh, yeah, you killed that guy. I'm going to go rob the stuff. You better figure this out. Yes. After things become more tense, it's this dream is slowly turning into a nightmare, if you will. There's still points in which uh, she is still playful with him, like mm-hmm. when he returns to her uh, later on where she's like digging through a few things and she has a gun inside of her hands. Uh, she instead just playfully goes like, what, do you think I'll shoot you? This is for you. And then sticks the gun Both down his pants. pants, which phallic imagery, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, I'm giving you the tool of destruction at your groin. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like overlapping here of sexuality and violence. The idea of VHS tapes both having uh, footage of like snuff film murder as well as pornography. There is that element going on here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's handled well. I think it's really easy to make that comparison like without tact. But I think there's things going on here that work on a subconscious level to make that work. I agree. Um, Both are violent outbursts, one could say, in this film. Very much so. Um, He goes to one of the rooms, by the way, and there's like this white flashing happening. He goes to room 26, uh, which inside it's like all red, and there's a sex scene happening there. And I don't know if the woman is meant to be Patricia Arquette or someone else. It's not really that clear in the lighting, especially. But this voice, you know, did you want to talk to me? Did you want to ask me why? Like extends the why, and then he just like leaves. <laughs> and at the whole time, it's like this the 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 Ramstein music it, playing in the background. It's something yes, and it's something horrifying enough to quickly close the door. I lean into the fact that instead of like talking or mm-hmm. asking those whys, we yeah. just invite doubt in and just let it linger. Yeah, become more powerful. And it's almost again that blurring of the lines where what she's saying more matches up with maybe how he's feeling about Alice. But this is not the location Alice was in. That doesn't make any sense. Yes. She would not be upstairs right now, which nope. furthers the dream logic idea. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, and this is around the time that Pete's nose is also bleeding, too. Mm-hmm. Which, do we know why the nose is bleeding? I just noted it in there that it started bleeding, but... Did something cause it? <laughs> I don't think that there was something that physically actively caused it. He like Pete himself in the moment has not really experienced anything like twinging pain. Yeah. I think that if anything, it's just more thematic for injuries, if you will, similar okay. to how like the head injury matches up with another head injury at another time. Fair enough. We also do get here this photograph that's over at Andy's place. Oh ma 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 ma. What? Ma 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 ma. Could you please speak up? Ma 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 ma. Oh, you're doing a song reference. You're looking at this photograph. I think. Nickelback? Yes, yes, it is Nickelback. That's what that was? Okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, This photograph that is of presumably both Alice and Renee, like next to each other, with on one end Dick Laurent and on one end Andy. So this photo seems important because we do get image then of Alice and Renee together as two separate people. Then later, we're going to see the same image, but instead of Alice and Renee, it is just one composite woman of Renee. Mm -hmm. Alice is no longer in the photo. The photo is changed so that they are smooshed together as one person, and the photo then, Dick Laurent and Andy, are closer together. It's like a different photo altogether. Mm -hmm. Um, So interpreting this idea that it always has been Renee, that Alice was never really there, that sort of mentality. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important that, we have these sort of like separations as well as togetherness because it's almost as if uh, the la- 
Alice's whole entire existence seems to be in favor of a fancy ideal, uh, and in many cases, until the very end, um, seems to be somewhat, at her own behest, more positive because she's been just drug into this overall mm-hmm. business herself. She's trying to find ways out, if you will. Um, and <laughs> there's a scene later on with the vampire that goes on to say that that's Renee. If she's told you that she's Alice, she's lying. Mm-hmm. And with that sort of like in mind, if again, we take this entity as the devil or the means of doubt. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if saying to, if you keep trying to dilute this with a fantasy, it's not, you're going to get so unfocused and it's going to get muddled. No, this is Renee. Focus on that mm-hmm. uh, before we go on a fun Renee arc and the uh, <laughs> few scenes to follow. So yeah, Pete and Alice are driving until they reach this random wooden place that we saw earlier in Fred's vision in the prison cell. I'm going to call it a vision. I don't know, delusion, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call mm-hmm. it. Regal- regardless Same place. of implosion in the creation of a cabin. And Alice is clearly in charge now. She's the one that's guiding Pete. And Pete is like, this- well, why did you choose me? Hmm? Oh, I was just going to bring up, this is the place of her fence, if you will. She calls it her fence, like the location of her fence. What do you mean? Oh, a fence is someone that you give stolen goods to. Oh, I missed that part them. of the movie. Yeah, no, that's why that they went to that general location, if you will, because hmm. she's got a fence that will be able to get a bunch of money. Sure, but sure. But the thing is, is that, well, um, it doesn't seem like money's here. Uh, no. It just seems like a vampire It lives here. <laughs> um, yeah, Pete asks why you, she chose him, and she just kind of dodges the question Asks if he still wants her. They then start having sex on the ground. Yep. Uh, as my as my sex. as my note says, the gravelly ground. The gravelly ground. At night, all caps. Gotta be cold. Gotta be cold. It's just like in but the headlights. So hot. It's like, could you imagine the discomfort? Because they're like their bare backs are grinding against the rocks here. I predominantly put myself as an asexual, so I don't know. Just like, just go sometime against at against rocks already sounds not so fun yeah. to me. But I mean, imagine that the chemicals in one's mind in which, like, gets you going and in the mood. Maybe they're just into that pain. You know, like, carpet burn, rug burn is one thing, right? Tiny rock burn. Tiny rock burn <laughs> sounds worse. <laughs> I, I don't recommend people go out into the highway at night in the darkness and rub their back against the gravel for prolonged periods of time with the weight of another person pushing against them too, further yep. into the tiny rocks. But it's still hot, steamy sex. After which, you know, he's like, I want you. And she whispers in his ear, you'll never have me. And then she gets up. Okay, I'm butchering it. This is one of my favorite moments of the movie. I do think the you'll never have me line is, is like... It's a pretty solid it's, it's, one, it's, whether it's or not it is on top of moment. Pete or Batman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. as, as she walks away in the nude uh, towards the overall steps of the cabin and steps in, and we slowly turn Pete into... Uh, not even really slowly. He's just on the ground. Then he gets up, and he's suddenly Bill Pullman. Boop. He's suddenly Fred Madison again, uh, very abruptly. Yep. And he doesn't seem to really have, like, changed his... Like, it's not like Fred stands up and he looks around like, where am I? You know, it's like Fred knows what's going on enough to continue acting like Pete was, you know? And he steps forward into the cabin to have that dialogue with the vampire, if you will. And 
the way that the tone of this dialogue sounds, if you will, mm-hmm. revealing about this difference and slowly like bringing out the overall video camera, I enjoy that there's almost this um, like taking the sense of doubt and just like making a very horrifying man out of him, mm-hmm. taking like the worst thing that he can have, like a video camera because he hates like, yeah. the idea of those tapes and him being the one behind them, if you will. And just chasing him down with this video camera. He doesn't want to be seen for what he is. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want to see himself for what he is as well. Yep. It is. Because when when you've... It's an interesting use of an overall personal demon. And and when you're faced completely with your actions and what you've done, when you can't look away and mask it over with some sort of fantasy, that sort of unflinching pain would be his worst fear. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't want to admit that he killed his wife. Mm Mm-hmm. It all tracks. It does. It all tracks. (laughs) Over at the Lost Highway Hotel. The Lost Highway Hotel, you say, after running away from the Um, uh, vampire. Room 26? Huh. 26. Does that number sound familiar? Mm. 26. It's almost like that was was the sex room earlier. Hmm. Uh, Hmm. hmm. We're both furiously just like scratching our goatees right now. A black-haired, from what I could tell, Patricia Arquette, has sex with Mr. Eddie slash Dick Laurent in this location. Yep, has the sex, kisses him on the forehead, and no longer away. blonde, no longer blonde, no longer blonde. Fred, it, that's because it's Renee. Alice, yes, it's not there real. Was, it was never Alice. If she tells you otherwise, she was lying. Fred knocks on Dick Laurent's door, beats him for putting him in the trunk. Mister Man just kind of taking a peek outside the nearby window. Which, by the way, uh, <laughs> it's a it's a strange little scene in which, like, you see, like. Of course, I'm just, like, spectating off to the mm-hmm. side. What I thoroughly enjoy is almost, like, as a sense of validation for himself, uh, as soon as he, like, knocks on the door, he says, Renee, almost solidifying yeah. <laughs> everything. He grabs him, takes him, puts him in the trunk, and what happens after they drive off to an unknown location and he opens the trunk? What happens there? A jack-in-the-box... A Dick Laurent in the trunk. I love the fact that, like, Mr. Eddie just, like, leaps out of the this car is a man and who would just, chokes He goes him down, down fighting. He goes down fighting. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and uh, There's po- Fred slashes his throat with a knife. A knife handed to him by the vampire. Mm-hmm. Because, apparently, this is just where he gets all his weapons from. That's how he gets his blood to drink. as his vampire. <laughs> um, Slits him in the throat, and he's able to still speak. But audibly choking audibly on his own choking. blood. Not like gurgly choking, no. just like, eh. I have like, I got to cough a little bit. Does anyone have a napkin choking? <laughs> um, you know, and, and I also like how Dick Laurent, you know, you know, asks, what do you guys want? And he tries to almost argue like, you know, hey, you know, we can, we can work together. We, we can, we can kind of collaborate here. Mm-hmm. But the mystery man instead um, shows him the blue porno, which turns into a slasher at points. And mm-hmm. it shows what presumably is a flashback of Dick Laurent um, viewing that with the black hair Patricia Arquette. Yes. Um, what do you make of what's being shown to Dick Laurent here? The like? very worst case scenario of all, if you will. It's something in which uh, someone as powerful as Dick Laurent, whether in a mm-hmm. personal fiction or in a potential reality, is shown that like the worst cases of what he is as a person is presented before him before he is utterly consumed and killed off by the overall being of doubt himself. The Mm -hmm. one who is the being of doubt is the one who does the finishing blow and shoots him in the chest after presenting him with it. Almost as if, like, that little cryptic, maybe it is the devil scenario, if you will, like, showing you your sins. Uh, 
It's also, right for you. curiously, the mystery man uh, whispers something in Fred's ear. I don't think we ever find out what we that don't. was. That's uh, in the box. I like to believe it's the same thing that, you know, Laura Palmer was whispering in, you know, Dale Cooper's ear in that dream, you know. <laughs> something about Leland or something. No, I'll tell you about in the morning after I sleep on it. Don't mm. worry, Sheriff Truman. It can wait. <laughs> oh, it can never wait. Um, we go back to Andy's place briefly. Well, we as the viewers, not Fred. And uh, it's an active crime scene at this point, And that's where the photo on the counter has shifted. Um, when they see this photo, they remark that that is the wife of Fred Madison. They don't say the name Renee, but by association, they're identifying that as Renee. Mm -hmm. And at which point they also talk about how Pete Dayton's prints are all over the place. Yes. And the one detective is like, you know what? You know what I think? There's no such thing as a bad coincidence. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that line? What I make of that line? I think that, I think it's that sort of like thin... If we believe it inside of the narrative, mm -hmm. if you will, of the mental narrative, it's a reinforcement of an idea of like taking in coincidences as an area of potential correlation. Mm -hmm. It's almost like saying like, yeah, the, you know what? I think that this all just sort of like links together and it just makes sense. In a broader sense, if you will, um, if we believe in the very confusing timeline of this yeah. film being like... You know what? We were following them around all week. This was just bound to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not 100% sure how I, how I understand this quote as well. I, I'm kind of grappling with it and kind of struggling with it. But this does do a lot to suggest the idea that the mystery man had suggested that it always has been only Renee. Yes. Which really peels apart the fabric of Pete's narrative. Mm -hmm. The moment you do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. We also see Fred returning to his old home and going into there and saying Dick Laurent is dead, mm -hmm. therefore kind of closing the loop almost uh, of now coming back to the start of it and saying the line that began the film mm -hmm. and thus the inciting accident. The, the question of how that even came to be was finally given an answer just in the most roundabout weird way possible that yep. he himself had caused that message to be. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get the chasing into the night, the advancing along the lost highway. And uh, as I put it, he violently thrashes as he becomes body horror. <laughs> he certainly do become he body horror. He do become horror. body horror. That is a very eloquent way of saying it. So we've we've talked about we talked about some of the men, some of the men and their roles in the film. Some of the men might be one men. Who knows how mm -hmm. many men there are? Men, 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 men. I would say the most complex character. Maybe you could say it's Fred because everything might be in his mind. Yep. But I think otherwise, in terms of like the characters we see on the film for the most part, I think that Patricia Arquette's du dual roles of Renee Madison and Alice Wakefield are among the more complex. Oh, okay. Fair, uh, fair, fair, fair. Uh, that you say that about Laura Palmer and Maddie Ferguson. I mean, <laughs> uh, in Renee the credits, Madison, Alice Wakefield. In the credits, they are organized for this film by order of appearance. And it is organized that way with Renee as a separate character from Alice. Yes. Whereas a lot of other times where there's the duality, like Mr. Eddie slash Dick Laurent is identified as one character. Well, that's character. like two different names. That's just two like different a, names. Yeah. But they do consider Renee and Alice two different characters. Yes. Um, notable for this. Um, Patricia Arquette took the roles of Renee and Alice, supposedly, mm -hmm. because she wanted to portray a more sexually desirable and dangerous woman. Mm. A role that she said she had never done before that. And she also was a big fan of David Lynch's prior work. 
on a June 18th, 2019 episode. I want to wait for like the actor that says, I hated David Lynch, and I'm surprised that I actually got on set to work with them. <laughs> um, on, on June 18th, 2019, the, on an episode of PBS, the series Actors on Actors, Patricia Arquette recalled doing one of her nude scenes in this film. She admitted she chose to play characters more sexually confident in herself, including performing nude and sex scenes. Arquette added, quote, I'm completely opposite in my personal life. I was born really modest. I don't want anyone to see me naked. When it came to time to film the film, she made sure only the necessary crew members were on the set. Mm. She said, maybe this is inappropriate. Maybe I can get sued for this. But I told everyone, I'm going to take off my robe. If I turn around and see you and I know who, I know you don't need to be on the set, I'm going to come punch you in the face. <laughs> and she said, all of a sudden, about 40 people were scattering into the desert. <laughs> It does remind you of how big these film sets are, that, like, 40 people could just, like, be disposable, and it could still disposable be shot. Disposable in it the desert. It could still be shot. Like, they didn't need yes. to be there for that scene. There's just so many people <laughs> just there. So, um, you know, not not huge, I don't think, for the, the film, but it was an interesting little side there. No, um, what, do you, what do you think of Patricia Arquette playing these two characters? I think that overall that she's very well accomplished through her performances throughout the roles. I think that the sort of, like, difficulty to read individual towards the beginning, if not a more sympathetic role at the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, is very notable. I think that her appearance throughout the film has... Her uh, completing the goal of what the actress set out to do, like she set out to be this more uh, overall sexual individual, and I think that she accomplished that with strides and so on. Uh, but beyond that, I don't really know what to say beyond I was very impressed. I thought she was fine. I was okay. I guess I wasn't really that impressed. I thought she did an okay job. Yeah, I, I think I was impressed. I think she did better. I win. What would you say, like, was the thing that she did really well that, that won you over? The thing that probably won me over was the second viewing. Mm. It was the second viewing when I ended up kind of, like, seeing her in this blue light scenario, if you will, <laughs> of just, like, her wandering around or just looking about or just, like, trying to deal with this man inside of her life that is dangerous mm -hmm. like very clearly he's becoming more and more of a danger and how like she's just trying to stay reserved enough calm enough if you will but the thing is that the problem just doesn't go away and it doesn't like it doesn't feel like still it doesn't feel anything in which uh, i think that she could have done any better in certain areas i think that for what she was she was given she excelled with do you think she did a better job with renee or alice or equal renee but mostly because I think I have a bias against characters like Alice. Okay. How so? A character that appears to be a bit of temptation inside ah, of it. Yeah. The femme fatale. The femme fatale, yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, maybe it's doing it to subvert the idea. Maybe. But it's still playing into that trope to do that. Yep. Um, so with Renee, she's got two primary connections we can determine. Uh, one is with Fred. And then one is with Andy. So... Andy's a pretty quick one. We could probably wrap that up is that all we get in the first 40 minutes is that she met Andy a long time ago at some place called Mokes. She said they became friends. He told her about a job. She doesn't remember what the job was. And then she's like, yeah, Andy's okay though. And then Fred just has the conclusion that he has some effed up friends. <laughs> and that's pretty much all we know for a fact. Yeah. The guy throws pool parties and, you know, Fred's suspicious of him, but she just says he's a fine guy. She gave He gave him some kind of job at some point. She doesn't remember what the job was. Yeah. And that's it. It just seems like a friend called her up at one point, invited them to a party and so on. If it turns out that the incidents that are unfolding in Pete's part 
are based on some element of reality, it is possible mm-hmm. that Renee is lying here, that she has a double life, that this guy, Andy, the job he had was actually very sinister and, and, and very, very dirty and gross and exploitative and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But we don't have enough to confirm at that moment in the first 40 minutes that that's any of it. This mm-hmm. just, again, this is where I think your dream analysis fits, is that it feels like this plays into what Fred is thinking. Yes. Which is a pretty extreme thought, given just the circumstances of wife knows a friend from somewhere. <laughs> it must be the porno man. It must be it's the porno. It's a very, very drastic jump. It is. Um, so, back to Fred then. Renee's relationship with Fred. Uh, like I said, first viewing, I kind of filtered it through the idea that he seems to be domineering, controlling to the extent that it might even be hinting at possible abuse or um, violence in the household because mm-hmm. she shirks away. She gasps when he's suddenly behind her. She doesn't make eye contact. There's a lot of signs of lack of connection. Um, but, but again, counterpoint of that, if there is some truth to the assessment of the later parts of the film, she may be not making eye contact because she is in control of the situation. She's not going to give him the gratification of that eye contact. She knows that she's just going to go wherever she wants anyway. Mm -hmm. She'll lie that she's reading, but she's really out of the house doing whatever she wants. And when he comes home, he's never really going to please her, but she'll just get over with and then she'll move on with her life. Mm -hmm. You could read her as maybe a little bit more agency than what I'm thinking at the beginning. Where, what do you kind of view with Renee and Fred? Where do you think this relationship sits? Horrible. Like, it seems like incredibly unstable, and it seems that Fred is so focused on the fact that he can't really do the sex correctly mm-hmm. uh, that he's almost, like, centered, like, the focus of the relationship around that. Like, what other th- aspects of the relationship that they have, what uh, sort of, like, interest they have is maybe laughter, but beyond that, I don't know. Well, and it's the idea that she doesn't even go to the thing he's really excelling at, which is the saxophone. Yep, she's not there, like, with them at the time, which, hey, it's a late-night club. Yeah, she's not obligated to go either. It sounds like they go all the time. It sounds like at this point, like, it's... The the lack of connection with them seems like this is a failing marriage at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, How... The the extent to which it's failing, the extent to which there's darker things on the periphery, that's up to the imagination and kind of your own determination. Yep. You know, your headcanon as far as things are concerned. Um, Alice Wakefield also kind of has two primary, I guess, male interactions. Um, Andy is still in the element here, I suppose, but I'm mainly thinking of Mr. Eddie and Pete as Mm -hmm. the two focals. Um, So with Mr. Eddie, how do you interpret their connection? Well, their connection is, again, if we... (laughs) If we go on to the means of dream, if you will, Eddie's literal name, uh, if you will, is Dick. Yes. Like Dick. Mm-hmm. It's Dick. It's penis. I, I, and, you and know, like, honestly, I, 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 having, never, I never thought of that. Okay. I'm thinking when it comes to like porno places and that the big yeah. bad guy is named Dick to yeah. emphasize like the bad thing. Uh, I think that he is meant to be someone powerful who has a hold on this one individual uh, in some realms made like making Alice more sympathetic. Uh, but on another end of the realm, he is someone that is the worst of the worst. Okay. And so to have like the worst of the worst sort of guy having a hold on someone that uh, Pete, no, but not Pete. Well, Pete and by extension, Fred yeah. hold a great admiration for. 
it, it, it's just, it's just making big villains. If anything. so, like, do you interpret Renee as like almost a captive prisoner of like Fred that she can't leave him or else she'll be in danger that she needs rescuing, or do you think like this was totally like kind of willing in the sense that she was getting herself in danger, but she was also putting herself in a position of power and she knew at any moment she could betray him. That's, I think it's actually fades from one to two. Like yeah. it fades from one side to the other, because at the beginning, that's when we see like her getting involved in the business, if you will, and where she's more so um, very light of voice, if you will, uh, during Pete's interactions. But by the end, when they're just sort of laughing at the horror snuff film pornos together with everyone uh, who is horrible in the same room, including the uh, individual we have off to the side who's made pornos. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I think that this is just like a process, if you will, a process of how involved in this dark area that she is until like the truth of it being Renee is revealed. So by his perspective, she becomes the worst as like things he de delves deeper into his delusions. This is again one of those angles where I think the dream analysis part of it is a bit more appealing to me because then it shows that she shifts in his perspective, kind of falling back on, I've mentioned this before in Twin Peaks pod, the, the angel witch sort of dichotomy here, yeah. right? The Madonna whore complex that she's either the damsel in distress who needs rescuing or she is the manipulative femme fatale who is actually, you know, behind the whole thing. Yep. Not anywhere in between. She can't have sexual agency and still be a good person. Mm -hmm. Nope. She's either like being over dominated by this horrible man or she is manipulating him because she's cold hearted black widow mode. Mm -hmm. And if we take it to be, this is Fred's psyche here. It reveals his sort of sexist views on women and Renee specifically. Yes. You're either that or you're that. Mm hmm. If this is meant to be interpreted literally, then it's like David Lynch, you've made a sexist character along with your, your writer buddy here. You know what I mean? Like it's the moment it's all Fred's psyche, all the darker elements of it kind of fall into place in a way that I can understand a bit better and contextualize. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think that that's fair that if, if it is all in the mind, she is shifting. Her character is mutable. You mm -hmm. know, it is changing as it happens. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, you know, with Pete, she at some points is, you know, more sincere in her love, perhaps. But even when at the beginning, when I think about her interactions, she's very straightforward. We're like, yeah, you, you, you how'd you feel if you asked me out on a date? I uh, probably shouldn't do that. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you out on a date. Okay, fine. I'm going to go call. Like, she's very in control even from the beginning. Yes. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think her character is very elusive. And again, that line of you'll never really have me. He, he still, by the end, doesn't understand her mm -hmm. and how her, her mind works. Mm -hmm. And if we take that to be the mind of a murderer, he can he can do violence upon her. He can silence her. He can kill her. He will never know her. He will yep. never have that real power of understanding her because he it's in it's escapable to him. He just can't grasp it. Mm -hmm. um, and even, even now, she's evading him. I think that's more compelling than if it's not a dream. I agree. So, in conclusion, <laughs> we agree. Nice. I love it. We Perfect. Win. We won Twin But no, no, we this is not Twin Peaks. We win Lost Highway. We win the Lost Highway. Our reward is Scarmambosia, pain and suffering. <laughs> Our reward for winning a Lost Highway is the three-piece movie set to Cars the movie. After all, life is a highway. <laughs> you have a laugh track on that um soundboard? I'm Johnny Cash. 
That's not a laugh board, Professor. I'm laughing. That's not a laugh board. That's that's a that's a that's a deep cut. And that's an oldie right cut. there. Um, um, so, Mr. Eddie uh, slash Dick Laurent is played by Roger. No, I said Roger. It's Robert. Robert Logia. Apparently, I had mispronounced his name as Logia at some point or something when I was talking about uh, about Blue Velvet. I'm still not sure I'm saying it right. My apologies if I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> Um, Robert Loggia was the first and only choice to play the character of Mr. Eddie mm -hmm. because prior, prior, previously, before, uh, <laughs> he had the former desire to play Frank Booth in Blue Velvet. Remember mm -hmm. when I was listing all those people that were like the first choice supposedly to play Frank Booth? Yep. This was one of those people. Welcome in. And I gotta say, <laughs> he's he certainly has atmosphere, uh, if not adjacent to that of a right. Frank so, Booth. Right, so yeah, if you remind you of Frank Booth... um. That might be very much on purpose here. <laughs> in 1985, Loja showed up for an audition on the set of Blue Velvet, unaware that Dennis Hopper had already been cast, and he proceeded to wait for three hours, growing increasingly agitated. Upon seeing Lynch and learning of Hopper's casting, Loja proceeded to give an extremely profane and angry rant to Lynch for making him wait, only to remind him that the role had already been cast, which remained in Lynch's head for nearly 10 years, as what would eventually become Mr. Eddie's road rage scene. This is, again, a little bit of editorializing where I don't know if that source can confirm that. Can you confirm that's where the road rage scene came from? I don't know, because Michael J. Anderson also thought that's where that one encounter that uh, David Lynch had had prior, where Michael J. Anderson was in the car, David Lynch said that he wanted to destroy the person who just cut them <laughs> off. You know, I don't know where the road rage scene came from. This is one interpretation. Okay. Anyway, 10 years later, or about there, Loja received a phone call from Lynch requesting his performance in the movie, and Loja was more than happy to accept. Um... Apparently, Robert Loggia kept forgetting his choreographed moves in his big fight scene with Bill Pullman, resulting mm -hmm. in Pullman repeatedly and accidentally hitting him, like actually hitting him. <laughs> so, because he just didn't know what he was supposed to do. Oh, no. So. Did they have no choreographer for this? I think they or? did. I just think it said that he kept forgetting the moves. Okay. I don't know, man. I just go with what the internet That's tells scary. me. scary. Yeah. It just says Mr. Eddie's a scary man. No, I think, that, I think that's up to, like, the director or the people there on the set that day. I Fair think, enough. I think that's the scarier thing. Fair enough. Uh, so we, 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 we kind of glossed over it earlier, but uh, Mr. Eddie had a great drive scene with Pete. Yeah. Going going way back over here to the the, the car dealership, he, he picks him up, and, uh, you know, he hugs him, asks what happened. You know, if someone's giving you trouble, you know, just say the word. I'll They'll take care like of it. That. I'll take care of it like like that. Like, like that. Like that. And, um... You know, he just tells everyone working there, you know, Pete's taking a ride with me. You know, just he's going with me. And uh, he says he doesn't like the sound of something. Well, most literal way, he doesn't like the sound of his engine. It's making a weird noise. He has Pete check the engine. But also the vague language, I don't like the sound of something. I'm suspicious of something, which yeah. has connotations for this character. Yes. Um. Anyway, he goes and fixes the engine. Mr. Eddie's all smiles. It's beautiful. He did a great job, Pete. But then someone behind them is like swerving driving real fast right against their bumper mm -hmm. and is right on their tail honking. Mr. Eddie, okay, finally pulls, you know, he rolls down the window, gives him a sign to pass, and the man, as he's passing, flips him off. Big mistake. Two guys in the back immediately buckle their seatbelts because they know where this is headed. <laughs> Mr. Eddie rockets off, just like the footage like is sped forward. It's almost comical, right? Yes. No, which it is I, comical. Which I think is on purpose, yeah. for sure. And he like rockets off and rams again. So taking your, your vulgar statement earlier, Dick rams himself into the back end. Yep. 
violently. Anyway, yep. so then they, they drive him nearly off the road. Eddie grabs his gun. The guys in the back are at the ready, and they're just, like, screaming. Like, Mr. Eddie's just screaming at him, like, you never tailgate. Right? Tells him to get a driver's manual and study it and follow the rules. 50 effing thousand people were killed in the highway last year because of a-holes like you. The more you know. So again, kind of that blurring of the lines between violence and comedy that Lynch is probably one of the best at. I don't know of anyone who's like better at that thing <laughs> of violence with comedy like this. Mm. You don't know how to feel. Are you supposed to be afraid and intimidated? Are you supposed to laugh at the guy? Um... <laughs> That's a very unique feeling sometimes. Mm-hmm. I remind, it reminds me of something. Very, very, very similar encounter, one would say. Uh, I was in high school, and uh, I was with a group of friends. Like, I think it was like three or four friends. And we were outside um, quite, quite, like, kind of near where, like, the principal's office was, but, like, in, like, the main uh, commons area of our school. And we were just talking pretty quietly. It was, like, kind of, you know, kind of casual conversation. And the assistant principal comes out of the room and starts chewing us out for shouting right outside his door. And none of us had been shouting. And I was I was like a very socially awkward, socially inept child. Uh, I'm slightly better now. But uh, but I, I just kind of was smiling because I thought he was joking. I was, my little pea brain, 10th grade brain <laughs> was like, he's doing a bit. Because we were not yelling and I knew we weren't yelling. And he looked at me and he saw me smiling and he chewed me out even more because he thought I was thinking this was funny. And it, that's that feeling you get, right? When someone's yelling so over the top about something that you know is ridiculous. Yes. That you're like, okay, this is scary. This person's way too angry. This is a frightening situation for me. But also, <laughs> do you realize what you're yelling about right now? And this is kind of reminding me about the situation where he's screaming about getting a driver's manual and, you know, people die on the highway. And it's like, you just got Very done pulling a gun on someone. Like, you're, you're talking to me about this. I see. Clearly, mistakes are made. You've got to tie yourself down and just relax yourself. So just anyway, yourself. I, I am definitely saying that they are equally the same situation. It's the same exact thing. Me, me as Parallel. tenth grader, and this uh, basically the same thing. You told David my Lynch to write this. My assistant principal was Robert Loja. This <laughs> 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 really happened. Um, but yeah, uh, Pete just kind of watches from the car. Yep. This is where that Hollywood signage is on the hill in the back. And, and I, I'm still kind of struggling to think, is that, is that important? Because with Lynch, he could have filmed this on any particular hill. Why did he want the Hollywood sign like in view like that? Now, is this coincidence or correlation? I think it's more correlation because again, you can find any shooting location and Lynch is so picky. Yeah, He but, doesn't do things until he has the right place. Yeah. But maybe like there were like 90% aspect of this was like perfect. It's just that that was just I, like mundane. With Lynch, it's got to be a hundred. <laughs> like I really, I will mold this mountain. I'm to going make to it go perfect. blow up the Hollywood signs, <laughs> remove the letters from the mountain. You see where I'm getting at with that? No, but I, I really, I, I'm inclined to believe it's on purpose, and it's, it's subtle enough that the movie never, you know, shoves it in your face. That this is like, yeah, L.A. Hollywood, but it, like. I don't know. It, it's it's definitely an element of it. I just don't know how to feel about it yet. Because there's also the element of film being used here as hyper-violence and hyper-sexualization. But Lynch is not the type to be like, oh, movies these days are too violent, too sexual. Lynch, you are that. Lynch, you are those <laughs> things. So, like, I don't think he's trying to do some criticism of Hollywood. Not that way, at least. Uh-huh. Maybe he's doing the criticism 
if we want to if we want to really defend him as like the feminist icon right now, you know, and say that Lynch was right, you could say you could say that Lynch is calling out Hollywood for the tropes that this movie is is showing off. The idea we talked about with with uh, Alice of the damsel in distress dichotomy with the femme fatale that mm. this is what Hollywood movies are like. This is what that fiction's like. But the truth, it's much different than that. Like you could <laughs> you could do that, or maybe you're exposing the fact that Hollywood has this sort of dark underbelly of, of a grossness underneath it. You know, similar to how Blue Velvet, you had the pristine green lawn underneath of the bugs. Similar here, you have the Hollywood signs, you have the flashing lights, but underneath it all is the sort of people who would do this violence in this underground pornography industry and blah, blah, blah. Maybe. Maybe. IDK. Uh. By the way, I did make a little offhand comment about David Lynch, you know, the feminist here. And I want to be clear, I actually do kind of think this movie, in respect to the movies we've seen so far from David Lynch, I, I kind of left this one feeling this was like one of the best in terms of portrayal of gender and characters. I mean, I noticed that, like there are there are definitely moments of nudity or sex. A lot of it does not feel sexualized or objectified. If anything, a lot of those scenes have a sort of ominous or dark tone where the women are kind of in danger. And it's more of a sense of like, these are the machinations of manipulative men who force their will. Like, I feel like the the sex scene earlier with Fred and um, Fred and Renee, that one I don't think necessarily sexualized Renee. I, I think, if anything, it made it seem like there was the focus on how pathetic and bad um, the dude is here. Mm-hmm. And then the most like explicit nudity would be the scene where she's forced at gunpoint to strip. But again, everything about that scene, I don't think it's sexualizing the actor or trying to in some way titillate the audience. I, I really don't think that's what's happening in a lot of these scenes. Even when it's showing like a rather hardcore like pornographic scene, it doesn't feel like to me it's done for the audience's like reaction. I suppose that I don't know if I necessarily agree per se. I, I, I didn't get as much from them as um, your presenting here mm-hmm. uh, for the most part because of the specific shots that we get of individuals such as Renee's actor right before the act of sex mm-hmm. where like her robe is slowly dropping off and she's posing mm-hmm. if you will uh, before walking off and also then returning to the bed scene later uh, or the bouncing booba at certain points uh, or the like the clear prominent shots that do focus upon the breast on uh, multiple moments Meanwhile, I find many of the male figures to be more obscured. Uh, yes, in at the same time, I think it was the Pete sex scene with Sheila. We have prominent imagery of his back on most of that scene. It's mostly his back muscles that we're looking at more than we actually are her. I don't, I don't, I didn't see that balance. I saw the opposite. I suppose okay. so. Maybe, maybe we should get like a stopwatch to be like, oh, here's the here's the back. <laughs> we're going to quantifiably, objectively <laughs> measure the sexualization of this film. I, I guess I, I, this I is all. If, it's all subjective. Yes, if, if there's anything that I could say is that the male form isn't as explored no. uh, as I would say the female form. But isn't. I guess I don't feel like in this film it's trying to explore things equally. I think it's more mm. showing how people, oftentimes men in power, uh-huh. control the women in their lives, whether it's the wife that they're domineering over or it's criminals like Loja or you know the directors of these pornographic films. Uh-huh. I, I mostly see it as 
kind of a portrayal of those situations. Okay. Um, so I think it'd be kind of awkwardly weird if it tried to show the beauty of the male form in that context. Yeah. Because most of this is dark. Most of this is not good. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I really am saying is that, you know, Lynch, Lynch is no stranger to, especially from his eternal foe, Roger Ebert, from, <laughs> uh, from criticism about his portrayals of nudity and sexuality with female characters yeah. and with the actors who play them. I, I kind of left this one feeling like this was very well considered. I didn't think really much of it was excessive. It, it at least for my reading of it, um, I, I do think that while I'm not, you know, I'm not a huge, huge, huge fan of Patricia Arquette's portrayal. I thought it was good. I thought it was fine. But I do think that her character has a lot more, and well, I should say characters, yes. you know, playing multiple here. Yes. There's a lot more going on with her than I felt there was with Lula or with Sandy mm-hmm. um, from Blue Velvet. Um, women have oftentimes been very minor elements in the lives of their male characters. Whereas this gave, you know, by the end, Alice, a lot of agency. And it showed that even if, you know, even if Fred is dominating over the marriage, he really will never know her because he never was able to try. Mm-hmm. He just kind of always tried to push and push and push. So I don't know. Again, I kind of look at this film and it's more like, I'm a little bit more, a little bit more in uh, thinking this movie's got, uh, got some good ideas. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. For for how dirty and gross a lot of this movie feels in its theming, I don't it feel is. it stoops to that low. I don't feel uh-huh. like it is exploitation. Okay. I think it's about exploitation, but isn't exploitative. Okay. That's probably the that's probably what I should have opened with. That that's like the <laughs> thesis statement, right? It is the thesis statement. So would you disagree with that then? Do you think it is exploitative? I think that that's something I'm gonna percolate on. I think that you bring up some interesting points mm. itself, and I think that the overall line you bring up in your thesis statement has me wanting to process more of that, but I think I need to like that's fair. keep processing this film multiple times. And that's that's the thing about this movie that I really like is it does lend itself to multiple viewings very, very well. I agree. And it's open enough that you're going to get what you, you know, each time you might get something different. I think it benefits me personally from the multiple viewings to even just like get past the fact that the first half hour, I think, basically bored me. Uh, I, I almost, <laughs> I wanted to say you get what you come for, you get what you want out of it, but I'm like, no, not really. I don't think you always get what you want. I think it, it's going to spit things at you and it might be tapping into parts of your mind or subconscious. Uh-huh. It may not even be the viewing experience you want, but it does give you different things each time you view it potentially mm-hmm. or showing it to other people, they might get different things out of it. And I think, I think it's, it's a strength of abstract media like this. Um, not abstract at all. Very concrete, objective question for you. <laughs> if, if, hypothetically, Dick Laurent mm-hmm. and his leagues of henchmen yeah. were to go against Dennis Hopper's Frank Booth. Okay. Let's say Dick Laurent is, is cruising and he has to make a pit stop over in Lumberton. Okay. Yeah. He goes there and he has an altercation at the bar with Frank Booth. The confrontation of these two disgusting criminal alpha men. Okay. What happens? Who who comes out on top in a confrontation between Mr. Eddie, Dick Laurent, and Frank Booth? Mr. Eddie, Dick Laurent, and Frank Booth. So there's, like, there's a, there's 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 a slash two, in there. There's, 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 you no, there's a slash. I just didn't pronounce it. <laughs> I don't have to pronounce the hyphens or slashes in words. Well, I think that the two-in-one duo, uh, Mr. Eddie and Dick Laurent, would come out the victor very easily, actually. Yeah? Um, because the di- main difference between these different firecrackers, if you will, is that Frank Booth seems to be someone that at very least seems very choreographed in his actions, if you Mm -hmm. will, especially when he has to take a deep breath of something. As long as, like, uh, he pisses off Mr. Eddie enough, 
to get at him before he takes a whiff of his uh, butt sniffer. Uh, I think that overall he'll have a what? good chance. He pulls it out of his ass, the oh, tube. Okay, to people who aren't paying attention to everything you say, that might be very confusing. Okay, He pulls the tube out of his yes. ass and okay. sniffs it. So you're thinking uh, that Mr. Eddie can like manipulate the fragile emotions of Frank Booth and manipulate him. I think that they both room. get pissed off They're at each other. They're both incredibly rash people. I just think that one's faster. Okay, that's fair. It's incredibly fair. <laughs> and they both got equal numbers of henchmen, probably, right? Probably. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> I, I would say that maybe um, Dick Laurent has maybe only two or three bodyguards, but they're, like, more experienced, more capable. Like They seem, they like, seem more focused as yeah, opposed towards the very uh, wild gang. Yeah, just kind of some friends of his that are a little wild and ru- unruly, yeah. but not, like, trained bodyguards. Mm-hmm. So, there's that also. Huh. Which character do you think was written better? Um... I mean, granted, one plays a much larger role in the than the other, but... As far as a continuous presence to be antagonistic, mm-hmm. Frank Booth. Yeah. In a structure of just a character in general that seems to be influenced uh, the story, I enjoy Mr. Eddie. So, but I think I lean more on the first result more yeah. than I do the second okay. result. I lean for Frank Booth as well. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the soundtrack of this movie? It was music to my ears. So it's Angelo Badalamenti for the it's instrumental. It's Angelo Badalamenti, yes. do, you, do you like that Angelo Badalamenti score? Do you uh, feel like it's the same as we've always heard or different? I Actively, I think that it still is. I think that he's got a signature mm-hmm. to some of his sound overall. I think that from what I was hearing from Angelo Badalamenti, I was enjoying. Mm-hmm. And for the instances where everything was very, very quiet, um, there were even some points where I was thinking to myself, Where's Angelo? Mm-hmm. Where are you right now, buddy? <laughs> and there's a lot of moments with um, music with lyrics from like different bands okay. that punctuated a bit more than ones we've heard before. Yes, so we've had like you know Julie Cruz singing at the you know the the, the scenes in Blue Velvet. You know we, yes. we've had that, or we've had obviously in Blue Velvet, Blue Velvet being sung. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one has a lot of like non-diegetic music, a lot of just music added to the background. Yes. Um, so it opens up with an intro song uh, from David Bowie. Yep. We all live inside a dream. So the song is I'm Deranged by mm-hmm. David Bowie. I think it's very effective for setting the mood. I think that when I first popped in the DVD and thought I would go to a menu uh, and said David Bowie's voice popped up as we were driving down the road, I thought I had enough time to get a snack, but I was very incorrect. No, apparently the whooshing title uh, decided to go on without me. I don't even know what happened because I, I used the same <laughs> DVD and I had a menu, so I don't know what happened. Yeah, no, apparently you get one I don't. So uh. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, I, I think Bowie was a good choice. Not only yeah, is it interesting that he just got done working with Bowie on Fire Walk with me a couple of years before, uh-huh. but now we also have um, the song in here. And Bowie around this time was doing his touring uh, with Nine Inch Nails. And Nine Inch Nails are also part of the soundtrack, uh, especially mm-hmm. Trent Reznor. I think he had a couple credits on here beyond just the, the more vocal track. So yeah, Reznor and Bowie teaming up on this uh, film. It really is a time capsule for me because mm-hmm. I, I find that period to be really interesting for both of them. Uh, Reznor and Nine Inch Nails were right around the time of the Downward Spiral. So they were you know performing probably some of the biggest songs in their career at the same time that Bowie was entering his weird experimental industrial phase <laughs> of, um, you know, heart's filthy lesson or hollow space boy. So I, I like it just as a fan of those two artists in this era. Yes. I like hearing this representation and seeing a movie that I think 
fills in some of the physicality of it. It never quite reaches the level of grungy grossness that like their music videos would at that time. But I do think it captures a similar spirit to that industrial music. Okay. Um, also appearing on a similar note is an artist that the Nine Inch Nails helped um, promote, which was Marilyn Manson. Okay. And so this one is a bit tough to talk about because last year, we're in 2022 now, uh, last year in 2021, I believe is when it came out, that there were abuse allegations regarding okay. Marilyn Manson. So at time of recording this, he hasn't actually, to my knowledge, been um, formally found guilty of any charges, but there have been concerns raised by several different um, people, mm-hmm. I believe mostly women, uh, about his actions. And that is very disheartening to hear that women went through those experiences and that Marilyn Manson might've been doing those actions. Mm -hmm. So in no way, when I say that I enjoyed his music, when I enjoyed his performance, in no way am I saying I promote the man and what he was doing. If those allegations prove to be true. Okay. Um, it's, it's especially upsetting because Marilyn Manson's whole, uh, aesthetic was that he was trying to be an antichrist figure. I would like it if he wasn't doing actual evil things at the same time. So it's, it's very, you know, sad for me to hear as a fan of that kind of music and that movement. I will say on that note, just in terms of the artistry, I do think using Marilyn Manson was very good. Okay. Um, the I put a spell on you moment with that scene where it was utilized, I thought that Manson's vocals worked well for that moment. Okay. Um, and again, it's just another person that fits in this era where Nine Inch Nails would be also with Marilyn Manson mm-hmm. as a social Bowie. It's like they got the trifecta here. Um, <laughs> they also had Lou Reed. Lou Reed was doing the song when... Uh, Alice first appears out of the car okay. and everything kind of feels like it slows down. Yes. And then Rammstein from the, the scene with the, the sex scene with everything in red, um, very Ramstein. aggressive. Uh, great. Like the, <laughs> this is, this is again, where I'm going to be clear. Marilyn Manson, those allegations are true. That's awful. Do not support. But in terms of like the music, I'm like, this is some of my favorite, like industrial kind of like alternative, heavy, heavy, heavy stuff of the nineties. And it's just located. I love the lost highway soundtrack. This is one of the the lost. I I own, I own, I believe all the Lynch soundtracks. I believe, I know I I even have inland empire. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I think I have most of them. I know I for sure have a lost highway and I do listen to that sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's one of the soundtracks I like listening to the most because it is a nice mix of the instrumental with the actual like vocal tracks and it's stuff I would listen to normally anyway because I like that kind of music. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of the soundtrack overall. I'm assuming that's more of a thing for me than it is for you based on your responses. Based on my responses because I'm not as familiar with these artists overall. Mm. So my overall interest comes with like each scene individually and just how it immerses me. And, and side note also that Manson did make a cameo visually in one of the porno moments, um, that he was like one of the people on the screen. It was either porno number one or porno number two. Yeah. And, and it's, if you know what Manson looks like, it's, it's fairly clear when he's on the screen. So, Mm -hmm. which is also where those allegations get to be more uncomfortable viewing this film again. Not only do you have an actor who is accused of killing his wife, being the person who's implicit on suggesting someone kill their wife. Mm -hmm. You also have Manson who's been accused of like, sexual abuse in the porno film. And it's just like, oh, this film is aged very badly in some regards yeah. and, and very well for the visual effects, very well <laughs> for the analog horror. But some of the casting through no fault of anyone's like Lynch would never have known. And um, I think Joanna Ray, was she involved in the casting again? I think so. I think so. Um, yeah. Like they would never have known that this was all going on. So otherwise in terms of the aesthetic, I guess the next biggest thing for me was the lighting. 
Um, this movie is visually dark enough that I told you you really should watch this at night. Yes. Do you stand by that suggestion for viewers who may not have seen this film yet and are, for some reason, still listening to us go on about um, it? Not too much terribly. I think that there are effective moments during the night, but I don't find myself as mm. immersed as some people may. I, I feel like hours. I feel like um, Lost Highway and Inland Empire are very much best viewed at night because of how visually dark things are. Just don't do this one, Lost Highway, if you have any sort of sensitivity to flashing lights. Please yeah. do not, yeah. because that makes it even worse. There, there are only a, a few scenes where it happens, but it's, it's pretty intense it's, when it, it does. It's more intense than I've experienced with other David Lynch films. Yes, for sure. Um, originally, David Lynch supposedly had wanted to shoot Lost Highway in black and white. But the idea was discarded because it was financially risky to do that. Like, that would be considered not very good to make money. Yes. So the studio was kind of pushing back against it. And he actually was willing to kind of go with the color, I guess, which, you know, David Lynch being who he is, I'm interested. If he was that adamant about doing black and white, I'm surprised he relented. But anyway, nevertheless, the film was shot in varying levels of darkness and features few daylight scenes. Some sequences became so dark, it was difficult for viewers to see what was happening. According to one of the cinematographers, um, Deming, the thing I wanted to achieve was giving the feeling that anything could come out of the background and to leave a certain question about what you're looking at. The film is working under the surface while you're watching it. Um, and apparently the film's darkness was intentionally not adjusted during post-production. They did not dim or increase or anything doing the lighting after oh. in post-production. The sets were just very dark. <laughs> they were just very dark, which is very impressive. And so yeah. uh, I'd be scared in the hallway. <laughs> I'm just thinking of that part again with like the house where it like transitions into the red curtain in the background. Yeah, that's horrifying. I'd be, I'd be horrified on either side of the hallway. Um, so, no, I find the lighting to be such that it, I definitely recommend this movie to be watched in, in the dark um, because of the I think you get more immersed into the the imagery that maybe otherwise in daylight you might not be able to see. Yes. Um, so then that's also why I kept telling you to turn the volume up when I walked by you watching it. I, Cause I think the music and the sound is good. Like I think it's good too. My ears are just like a little bit more sensitive than yours. That's fair. I'm Forgive half deaf. Me. Um, public reception after a modest three week run lost highway went on to make reportedly $3.7 million in North America. And out of a budget of? We're getting to that. So that was the majority of his box office success was a $3.7 Wildly, at heart, it wasn't <laughs> until May 2017 that Lost Highway was released in Russia. Oh. In 2017. You know, 30, like, was that 30 years later? That's how math Maybe. works. That's how math works. And it grossed a little bit over $28,000. Okay. From what I can tell, uh, the movie was not a success. I, I don't know if I could trust the budget information I was seeing online because I couldn't find a verified source. Yeah. There's all just estimates. Mm -hmm. I was seeing pop up in a few different websites an estimate of a $15 million budget. If that is the case, it made less than $4 million on a $15 million budget, which would be, I would say, a definite flop. Yeah. I, I don't know where you draw the line between like a failure and a flop and like a catastrophe, <laughs> um, but that's not good. It's not good. You know? Um, so I don't know I if feel this sad movie, after I lose a few hundred dollars. So I don't know if this movie made even close to breaking even. Um, I don't know if this would be considered a success by any stretch because it also wasn't critically very loved. So it wasn't commercially successful. It wasn't critically loved. It's not the film that really cements Lynch for a lot of people. Yeah. It just kind of exists. It just it's, is here. It's not as known of a failure as like Dune, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, most critics initially dismiss, dismissed the film as incoherent. They just said the film doesn't make any sense. That's most critics at the time. Okay. Uh, but since 
uh, that time, it has attracted more of a cult following as well as critical praise and scholarly interest. Mm -hmm. On the review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 62%, based on 45 critical reviews, with an average rating of 6.2 out of 10. Mm -hmm. The website's critical consensus reads, quote, Marking a further escalation in David Lynch's surrealist style, Lost Highway is a foreboding mystery that arguably leads to a dead end, although it is signposted throughout with some of the director's most haunting images yet. Man, they really wanted to get, like, those little road puns in there as the best they could. I mean, it's a dead end if we think the dude dies from electric chair yeah, at the end, no, so we're, I, not, I we're not even really disagreeing with not you. Great, disagreeing um, at all. On Metacritic, the film holds a score of 52 out of 100, based on 21 reviews, indicating mixed or average reviews. Roger Ebert... I, I, I mean, a whole little section for him. This I feel time. like at this point, like we're just getting to know Roger Ebert, very which I think is now. kind of neat. I think, like you know, I'm not someone who really follows Ebert's uh, old opinions or like the website that's kind of carried on his legacy since. But I understand, like in the '90s, he was you know, and even before, he was the film critic. Yeah, but when will we get to hear about Siskel? After well, Gene Siskel, Siskel alive I'm for literally, any of the literally Lynch about films. to, literally about to read this. After Gene Siskel, ah. Hey, look, there's Gene Siskel. And Roger Ebert gave the film a negative review on their show. David Lynch issued a new poster calling the thumbs down they gave it two more reasons to see Lost Highway. <laughs> Why are you leaning into David Lynch's voice there? Because it was him. Oh. The poster. David Lynch put on the poster that the two thumbs down that Siskel and Ebert gave it is two more reasons to see Lost Highway. My God, that is... Asked for his opinion. A fantastic sort of like... Is that a... Is that like a spite spit happy face out of like an emotion? Asked for his opinion. I don't opinion, know what I said, but it sounds like it. Asked for his opinion. Siskel said, I found it petty. <laughs> there you go. That's your Gene Siskel content. Delicious. What do you think? Do you think the response of calling the two thumbs down, two more reasons to see Lost Highway, do you see that that is petty? I don't. It seems at this point he's taking the criticism I wouldn't say in stride, but he's, he's definitely... He's just kind of used to them hating on his stuff, right? Like, Yeah, he's just kind of like skipping along. He's just like, this This is just the status quo at the moment, so let's go. So I, I took a lot of quotes out of Ebert's review, and I just kind of want to run some of them by you with some questions. So I, I did look a little bit more in depth on, on this particular review, just because I was curious. Why? Because we've talked about Ebert's opinions being rather contrary to the public discourse around Blue Velvet or Fire Walk With Me. Like calling his movies, like, unethical a lot of times. So I was just curious. Let's look at Lost Highway, one of the dirtiest, grossest ones, right? Mm -hmm. And let's see what he has to say and run it by you. Okay. So, according to Ebert, quote, David Lynch's Lost Highway is like kissing a mirror. You like what you see, but it's not much fun and kind of cold. It's a shaggy ghost story, an exercise in style, a film made with a certain breezy contempt for audiences. I've seen it twice, hoping to make sense of it. There is no sense to be made of it. To try is to miss the point. So there's a lot to unpack, right? Just like just little <laughs> things here. So first thing compares to kissing a mirror. You like what you see. It's not much fun and it's kind of cold. Thoughts? It is. I mean, it's obviously subjective whether you like what you see or not. <laughs> it's something that which just does. It feels like one of those like insults that you kind of keep in your back pocket. Yeah. Uh, if you will, it's not nothing too unique other than the fact that we do have a mild we do have reflection. mirrors i i uh, do think it is a cold movie i agree with that I, I think i agree with the coldness of the movie but fun is 
debatable. I don't think the main feeling I'm having is fun, but that's also not what the movie is about, is this feeling of fun. Maybe it was just fun for him. It's not the feeling of like watching Ice Age when you're like nine years old. Maybe you know? it is. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. It's, um, a, it, it's one of those recommendations, you know, after you see Lost Highway, that's when it recommends Ice Age, I, a I, continental shift. But the idea that it's a mirror, I do think it reflects back at you maybe some of your subconscious. You know, maybe it, maybe it's a mirror in some ways. I don't think it's the way he means it. I don't think that he was putting that much thought into it. I don't think. I don't I think, think he's thinking the same thing. Eloquent with his words. Uh, Shaggy ghost story. I like the idea of Shaggy from Scooby Doo. No, uh, I like the idea of calling it a ghost story. I think it's kind of an interesting way to word it. It is in a way a ghost story. Yes, I'm, I'm fair. To, I'm, I think that's an interesting way to put it. It's got haunting. It is an it. exercise in style. I agree. Um, the big one here. He says, you know, it's a film made with a certain breezy contempt for audiences. Do you think this movie hates audiences? <laughs> Do you think David Lynch made this with a sort of derisive upper stiff upper lip? I think that the most stiff upper lip I can imagine like David Lynch going actively into is something like on the production end to just say, hey, can I do this? Mm-hmm. As we've like already but that's not to the audiences. That's, that's to the, to the production. Audience. Yeah, it's to yeah. the studio. It's to the production studio. Whether or not some people feel that disrespect will also stretch out otherwise. Um, that that's I, like yeah, I don't I don't think this movie hates audiences. I don't think that's I. What does it feel like whenever it like hates an audience? I think I think what it oftentimes is shorthand for because obviously movies don't feel anything they're movies, but the idea that the filmmakers are talking down to their audience and kind of like rolling their eyes or making fun of them or like yeah. they're almost treating the audience with a sense of flippancy or like they're purposefully making it some way because they're like cynically thinking that they'll love that Mm -hmm. a lot of like really irony poisoning i think is where it comes from a lot of times where it's like we're gonna dish them out pain and they're gonna like it but (laughs) i i don't get that sense out of this i think lynch makes movies for himself yeah and i and i and i mean that in all the positive and negative connotations i think that lynch makes something because it's an idea that moves him and if people like it great i i don't really think he's making it against people I, I, don't, I don't think he's motivated that way. I'm very interested if that tone carries into the return. Yeah. I'm very interested on how far this goes. What do you mean? <laughs> you say that David Lynch is, in the present tense, you know, making things for himself. Yeah. I think he made the return for himself, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Put a pin in that. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and he says there's no point to the movie. And if you try to look for a point, it's to miss the point. Like, you, you, there's no point to find. You cannot make sense out of it. Well, our podcast is useless. We should just throw this away. We've spent, like, close to three hours probably by this point, right? Mm-hmm. Just talking about nothing. We're talking about nothing. Um, he we calls, waste our time. He calls the movie an empty stylistic facade, and he writes that this movie is about design, not cinema. He refers to the scene where Patricia Arquette is, quote, forced to disrobe at gunpoint and stand naked in a room full of strange men and echo of Isabella Rossellini's humiliation in Lynch's Blue Velvet, which prompts Ebert to ask, does this scene have a point? Does any scene in this movie have a point? Lost Highway plays like a director's idea book, in which isolated scenes and notions are jotted down for possible future use. Instead of massaging them into a finished screenplay, Lynch and collaborator Barry Gifford seem to have filmed the notes. Is the joke on us? Is it our error to try to make sense of the film, to try to figure out why protagonists change in midstream? Let's say it is. Let's say the movie should be taken exactly as it is with no questions asked. Then what do we have? We still have just the notes for isolated scenes. There's no emotional or artistic thread running through the material to make it seem necessary that it's all in the same film together. 
big quote, big, big meaty quote thrown at you there. But yeah, this idea that these scenes do not have any point. They're just random scenes thrown together from Lynch's idea book. And that a joke is being almost played on us to try to make sense of them and put them together because there's been no effort taken to make it feel like one screenplay. Why should it take that effort to make it into one screenplay? Why does it have to be in which we have to throw in this idea of like how the perspective is supposed to just work out in general? Mm -hmm. Like we're just supposed to throw it aside and just accept it. I think that we should be asking questions on why is it more wild like this? Why does it go yeah. and deviate from the norm? Instead of just accepting that it just does. Mm -hmm. So when you do throw it into that realm of sight, sure. But I think that that also is being very insulting to the act of filmmaking in general. I feel like it's very limited. Like it's kind of limiting films to follow very predictable plot beats and follow a standard structure. And the moment a film deviates from that structure, it feels purely random. I don't think watching it subjectively, I don't think it feels purely random. I think, feel that it is not chronologically cohesive, but I yeah. also don't think that that has to be inherently bad. Does a film have to be? You know, to still be effective. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. I think I it's mean, still... Memento is like a big film people kind of put out for. Like... Yeah. I still haven't seen Memento yet, so no spoilers, I'm but I've heard. Spoiling. I've heard loosely, yes. Yeah. Quote Lynch is such a talented director. Why does he pull the rug out from under his own films? I have nothing against the movies of mystery, deception, and puzzlement. It's just that I'd like to think the director has an idea, a purpose, an overview beyond the arbitrary manipulation of plot elements. He knows how to put effective images on the screen and how to use a soundtrack to create mood. But at the end of the film, our hand closes on empty air. So kind of this feeling that he has that Lynch is talented and he knows how to create feelings of mystery and tension, but it just doesn't go anywhere. He likes to believe that Lynch has an idea or purpose that's beyond just manipulating some story elements, but it's not coming together for, for Ebert here. I feel like Ebert is the type of person that if the Lego set doesn't make the model, then what's the point? <laughs> like, there's no, like, playfulness that you can do to work around mm. it or just have, a, like, a bucket of random Legos and just put it together and make something fun. I think that it has to, like, make something to be a good Lego or, in this case, mm. a good film in the end. Like, maybe I'm bashing Ebert very No, this is, this is very entertaining. <laughs> It's very entertaining. <laughs> and I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't feel as passionately, but I, I do think Ebert's criticism is so interesting because it it's so detached from why I enjoy this film. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I, I'm someone who would probably give this like a solid like eight out of 10 kind of situation. Uh -huh. um, maybe seven and a half out of 10, depending on the day. Uh -huh. But I, I quite enjoy it because of the atmosphere, because of the feelings, because of some of the weird questions and ideas it makes me wonder about the mystery. I don't necessarily come to it feeling like, it is pointless or not or nonsense. I have seen films that are way like weirder or more experimental from this. I've seen things that David Lynch has made that make less sense than this. I think that whenever it comes to art, like you've got to at least play around with the materials just to at the very least work in a medium and feel very fulfilled from it. I'm not opposed to the idea of criticizing a film for feeling like it's asking questions and then empty. Yes. I think that's a fair criticism sometimes. I just don't think Lost Highway is doing that. I don't think it's doing that either. Like, I, I think that I, I, Lost think Highway that, has substance. I think that just, like, I, it's strange that it's just, like, pointing out, like, towards, like, David Lynch on, like, constantly doing this. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking to myself, like, even, like, when I see, like, David Lynch at his worst, in my opinion, because yeah. I really don't like Blue Velvet uh, as much as, like, 
a lot of other people do. Mm-hmm. I still do think that he's, at the very least, playing with the medium enough that it's something that I'm going to go in and have a different experience yeah. with, and I think that that's valuable. I, I agree with Ebert's take, Ebert's take a little bit more on Wild at Heart than I did with The Lost Highway. Yeah. I, I wasn't fully on board with Ebert's take on Wild at Heart, but at least there I thought the criticisms, like criticizing the, the Wizard of Oz element as being kind of holding it back. Yeah. I could see it, and I kind of I kind of agree with it. Six String Samurai did better. Fair enough. Uh, in terms of awards, Lost Highway won no major awards, just like won nothing. Um, it wasn't nominated for hardly anything either. Like okay. I tried to look and there's just not much on there. Okay. Uh, at the 1997 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, uh, Lost Highway was nominated for Worst Picture and Worst Director. Oh. But it lost in both categories to Batman and Robin. There's a lot of things that would lose to Batman and Robin for so multiple reasons. It was it was nominated for the worst picture and worst director, but that's that's about it. It's not much. <laughs> There's like some fest like local smaller festivals that did it, but not yeah. like big giant, you know, you know, big deals. Yeah. Compared to like, you know, Lynch who had previously like gotten nominations pretty high up there for director or like Khan would recognize them at the Palm Door for Wild at Heart. Um, this was definitely a again, didn't make hardly any money, probably lost money. It didn't get public it was only up for like three weeks in the theaters and barely anyone paid attention to it. I'm just thinking to myself, like in a place that sort of like celebrates the worst of the worst, like what sort of atmosphere, because this doesn't feel like it'd be like in a room, at, like the room atmosphere, Tommy yeah. Rousseau style atmosphere. So I'm just wondering like how a bad viewing of this would go bad being like, walking in knowing it's going to be bad reviewing that badness because usually whenever i try yeah. to see like a bad movie i'm going in entertained having some quips and you're looking for a fun. so bad it's good yes which this film doesn't i don't think offer that i, I think, think if you i think if you think this movie's bad you wouldn't think it's like entertaining you would just say it's empty it's it's vapid it's uh, it's drawn out it's mm-hmm. pointless it's frustrating like i think it'd be all negative emotions yeah I don't think you could find a lot of so bad it's good enjoyment out of here. Unless it's in the acting. Maybe you think that Robert Loggia, his Mr. Eddie is so over the top that it's kind of funny, but you think it's bad. <laughs> okay. Like, I really, that's one thing I kind of sympathize with with going back to Wilds at Heart for a moment. The actor who plays the mom, you know, Laura Dern's mom. I could see someone saying that's a bad performance because it's so, like, overdone. You know what I mean? When she's like doing the gra- the snarling with her hand and she's like <laughs> smearing all the red. I could see someone laughing at it thinking it's bad. Yes. I could see it. Yes. I, I think this movie's a little different than Wild at Heart, though. It's not nearly as campy or cheesy or silly. Yes. Um, I don't know. Any hoozles. Entertainment, Entertainment Weekly ranked this film as the 23rd scariest movie of all time at some point. For how many horror movies there are, 23 actually feels pretty charitable. <laughs> You know, at the grand scheme of things, sure, 23. It's not bad. Because it wasn't really that successful or that huge, uh, it didn't have a very broad appeal at first. I was reading about how it took like, a, a, it was a little over a decade for like the first DVD release to really come out for this movie. Yes. Even though in 97, DVD technology was not like totally foreign and it would be coming soon. But nope, it just wasn't a lot of demand for the movie. So they didn't release it again mm-hmm. for a while. Um, but it has developed a bit of a cult following. But it's not to the levels of like Fire Walk With Me's cult following where it like revitalized passion for it. Yeah. I think most times that Lost Highway's brought up, it's in the context of David Lynch fans and, and pretty okay. much David Lynch fans. Okay. Um, where it has some kind of middling appeal. You know, some people, I've talked to a friend who's really big into Lynch and he says he gets like nothing out of this one. Yes. You know, whereas I, I know that for myself, I do get quite a bit out of this one. Uh, random side note, by the way, in 2003, the Austrian composers Olga Neuerwerth and Elfried Jelinek turned the film into an opera. 
basing oh. it on David Lynch's and Barry Gifford's screenplay. Reportedly, the first act of the opera is spoken word, and the second act is sung. This is all reportedly. I was not there in 2003 <laughs> to listen to the Austrian opera. How dare you? <laughs> I think it's kind of cool that they do make the two different parts different formats. No, but I, I think that that sounds fun, but I'm not... I'm not familiar <laughs> with Austrian opera to know whether or not that's the norm or I, I think different. it's weird to know that that's the thing. Um, this this also uh, sparked a lot of curiosity in me because when I watched Lost High with the first time years ago, and even when I think about it now, the thing it most reminds me of is Silent Hill. Okay. Um, and I'm not a huge Silent Hill fan. To be clear, these games scared me as a child. Silent Hill, if you don't know, is a horror video game series. Started with the PlayStation 1, um, peaked in popularity at the PS2. Silent Hill 2 is considered by a lot of people to be one of the best video games ever made. Yes. Um, Silent Hill 3 has enjoyed a little bit less of success popularity-wise. Uh-huh. Uh, still has a lot of diehard fans. Mm-hmm. The first three Silent Hills, and a little bit with Silent Hill 4, kind of being considered a golden age of video game horror, and just horror in general. Yes. Uh, leaning a lot into, like, psychological, sexual, um, even spiritual horror with occultist sort of themes. And... While I don't play these games, because, again, they give me nightmares. Even now as an adult, they bother me. Uh, as a kid, they horrified me. I, I have a lot of respect for Silent Hill. I have a lot of respect for what they're doing uh, in those games. And I feel like this, of all the Lynch movies, of all the Lynch things, this is one of the most Silent Hill-like mm-hmm. for me. The idea of, and again, if you know the plots of Silent Hill, especially Silent Hill 2, the idea of this guy who commits an act of violence, represses that guilt and buries it into his subconscious, and is then haunted by ghastly figures along an ensuing, like, winding storyline. Yes. Just add some, like, body horror monsters and you've basically got a Silent Hill template. <laughs> and the use of the analog horror, the use of the darkness and the shadows and the industrial music... It's very, like, this has to be an influence. Um, from what I could tell, though, I tried researching, and I could not find any, like, outright confirmation. Okay. I know that Team Silent, the people who made the first Silent Hill games, uh, as they're kind of, like, known in the community, I know that those people were influenced by David Lynch. I know David Lynch is an influence on Silent Hill. Yes. There are there are things in Silent Hill that even call back to, like, Twin Peaks and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if Lost Highway specifically is ever, like, said to be a reference by them. Okay. Um. I was looking up some articles, uh, Aaron Plouffe from an article two years ago that was released on um, the website 25 Years Later, which in part is a Twin Peaks uh, fan site from what I understand. Uh, Very, very popular and very, very successful website. They were comparing how this game is, uh, Silent Hill 2 is very similar to Lost Highway in their article. So Uh I'm not alone in thinking that. Not crazy. And then Goombastomp.com. There we go. Bringing it back now, y'all. We found Goombastomp.com had an article that does a similar thing. But again, no confirmation. Okay. Yes, I cited Goombastop at the beginning just to tell you that they wrote an article that confirms that that suggested something I also thought without <laughs> confirming it. It's not even really a research. Like it's just someone else said it too. Someone else said it too. What what more research do you need other than confirmation bias? So <laughs> now that our biases have been confirmed, what would you say have been any like changes in your mind? Um, as we've talked about the movie, has anything occurred to you that you didn't think of when we first started? This has been a long trek of a podcast. It's been a long trek of a podcast. I think that for more than anything i think you and i had a fun time exploring the potential dream realm Mm -hmm. of this film so i'm glad that yet again i can lead you to my side of thought no i thought you were generally very insightful i would say you're the if we were looking for the mvp out of the two of us (gasps) i think you were the mvp this episode i won the mvp i have been the mvp for every single episode up to this point 
That's a lie. For 49 straight episodes, I have been the MPP. <laughs> MVP, not MPP. MVP. No, you're the MPP. I'm the MVP. <laughs> I have decided to crown you for the 50th episode of our podcast. You are the MVP of the Lost Highway. Your reward is Garmin Bosia, pain <gasps> and suffering. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations! I'm your best. You have a you have a oh, wow. you, have an, you have an applause track on your soundboard there. Erase it, Lucy. No, <laughs> this is the end of the podcast. It's erased from the record. Good number. Um, you like your even numbers, don't you, Khalil? Hafty, 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 happy fiftieth anniversary. Hafty fiftieth anniversary. Hafty fifty fifty episode. <laughs> fifty episode. How many, how many episodes time. think we're gonna have for this podcast? How? What's the number we stop I at? I fear the number. I sometimes. think we get to at least a hundred, right? You want to go to hundred? Okay. Okay. Well, like, you gotta think about it this way. We got eighteen for the return, right? So minimum of eighteen on the return. Minimum eighteen. You're gonna factor in a look back at some point with that. At yeah, least probably. one or two, right? At least one or two. Yeah. So we're let's just say let's twenty. Say 20. Like, let's say twenty. Firm twenty. Okay. We because got, you can't take 19, We've got 20. both Mark Frost books, The Secret History of Twin Peaks and The Final Dossier. That's going to add up. I don't know what the number is going to be, but that's going to be a lot. It's only just going to be two more pods. That's okay. That's going to be at least like probably six. Six? Seven, eight? I'm, ah! You don't know how dense those books I are going to be. I don't know how dense those books will be. But I, also, we go? I don't know how dense we will speak on books. Books is a fun new territory. Anyway, point is, we gonna we got we some episodes ahead. Some episodes. I can see us going to 100 at least. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, 200, we go. A thousand. <laughs> the never-ending podcast. I'll drop it at a thousand. Like, and for a maximum, guys, thousand-episode podcast. And let it be our goal to never innovate, because we've already perfected the formula of yeah. ending every pod with the wonderful and strange question of the week. I have three of them this time. <laughs> One of them. Hey, okay, the trademark question of the week, yeah. Khalil. I want to remind you. <laughs> I have three. Three question of the week. I have three <laughs> questions. First question. How has Lost Highway shaped your understanding of David Lynch as an artist? It hasn't. Next question. Really? It hasn't really. No, honestly. Uh, if you really want more words than this. Uh, Make it a full tweet. <laughs> It is something in which, like, nothing has really changed in my perspective. It's, I've heard the same things about David Lynch initially. I feel that overall, the tones of the film are fun to explore things, but the dreamlike quality is very notable, and we still have elements of David Lynch pop through, but not to any point of annoyance this time for me, such as red curtains, blue light, as well as red light. So, hmm. at this point, it seems like David Lynch is David Lynch. Wow. What a realization. Mm-hmm. David Lynch was the friends we made along the way. Mm -hmm. Between Fred and Pete's two sections Fred. in the film, kind of splitting it. Fred. I said Fred. 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 Oh, you're picking. No, 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 no. no. Oh, keep you're going. picking. Keep, keep, keep. Oh, sorry, keep, sorry. Keep, keep talking. Which one did you like more? Fred, 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 Fred. So even though you found the first, like, 20-ish minutes boring. I think that's, no, I think Pete's is more entertaining. Mm. I just prefer Fred's. Okay. Like Not it, for entertainment, but for the art. Sure, let's go for that phrasing. No, I think that... It makes things very interesting, okay. dependent on your reviewing, if you will. It's interesting, it's intriguing, and I think that that's the biggest benefit to the film, not just the entertainment alone. Okay. And then third, because we're just zooming through these. Ooh. Third one, since this was also written by Barry Gifford, mm -hmm. how do you think this is similar to Wild at Heart? 
And along with that, can you tell that Barry Gifford was involved in the writing? Um, I wasn't really considering Barry Gifford in the first place. Yeah. Uh, just because I wasn't, like, thinking towards yeah. Tip in general. I'm just saying, now that you know that the guy well, who wrote Wild at Heart was involved, does it feel like, like any different? Like, like I, it's hard to say because I think that, if I'm not mistaken, we had mentioned that the tone of Wild at Heart, the book and mm-hmm. Wild at Heart, what happened with David Lynch, are different mm-hmm. enough. That looking into this is something of a different tone, very similar to something of a different tone. No, it's a different tone. It's, it, it didn't feel like it was like a trademark uh, Barry Gifford sort of moment. But then again, I don't know how much Barry Gifford was in it wild at heart. So it is one's, tough, a dr- one's, one's dramatic and romantic, and one is dreary and horrifying. And I think that I'm leaning more on the Lynch humor of it all. Yeah, I don't really know if I feel any difference. And it's also hard because Lynch works with the writers sometimes. Like, we know Fire Walk with Me wasn't just written by Lynch. Um, so there are other writers that are oftentimes involved in his work. And yes. Lynch, as the director, has such a strong stylistic flourish that, like, I don't think it was Barry Gifford's idea to submerge scenes in red or have blue light. I feel like that's Lynch just going by trends here. But it's hard to really pinpoint, like, oh, that's a that's a David Lynch line mm-hmm. right there. That's a Barry mm-hmm. Gifford line. Like mm-hmm. the, si- the 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 line that you really liked in the movie where Loja turns to Pete, um, where where um, Dick Laurent turns to Pete and he says, like, you like porno, make make make, make you hard. And he like gives it like once again. It was, he was stutter, stuttering. He was very very confident. confident. Make you hard. So you like that line? Was that a Lynch line or was that a Barry Gifford line? I think it was Lynch. I mean, like, yeah, right. Like, yeah, it could be Lynch. So it's, it's kind of hard to get for enough to know what yeah, his lines like the are. problem is. I don't know what's not Lynch to like isolate <laughs> and, and say this is the Gifford part. I don't think we could get a straight answer either. So no. But speaking of straight, the straight story is our next thing. We're probably going to look at probably. or or it's going to be the access guide to Twin Peaks. Whichever one we end up finishing first. It's a Schrodinger's cat kind of thing. It's a Str- No, it's not. When I, I don't think right I, I now, no, nope. it could be dead or alive. It could be dead or alive. The, the box has speaking not been of, opened. Speaking of dead or alive, just because it's an anniversary episode, maybe I don't know. Because fifty is an anniversary of something. Who killed Tell Mark you? Frost? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I can do one better. I can do one Who put Josie in the doorknob? Who killed Laura Palmer? Who, who's Laura Palmer? <laughs> who's Laura Palmer? I'm gonna I'm gonna stick by uh by by the answer of I still don't know who killed Laura Palmer, right? We've got <laughs> we got that one on record. <laughs> <laughs>